Pot of gold. Hello, and welcome to another exciting episode of Ramble by the River. I'm your host, Jeff Nesbitt. To our returning listeners, welcome back. And if you're a new listener, please drop by Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, wherever you consume podcasts, and click that subscribe button. Also, don't forget to like it, share it, give it five-star reviews, all that stuff that you know works that you don't want to do because we all don't want to do it. Please just do it. It's really helpful, and this is a grassroots effort, meaning we don't have a big industrial powerhouse machine that's going to market the hell out of this thing. It's just going to be us. So if you like it, pass it on. At the time of recording, it is Thursday, May 20th, and it's been a crazy week. If you're into crypto, you know what I'm talking about. Major crypto fuckery going on. Elon Musk is involved in some way. I uh, have my theories, and I've been listening to some other theorists about what exactly has happened, but major crash, major crash, and now rebuilding. It, it seemed to me like it was a coordinated dump. The whales got together and they said, hey, let's let's do the old pump and dump. A whale is a person or entity with more than a thousand Bitcoin in their wallet, I think. But so Elon and his rich buddies, they got Bitcoin hype just revved up to a fever and they brought the price all the way up to almost $70,000. And all of a sudden, Elon says, yeah, actually, nah, we're going to we're going to say Tesla's not going to take Bitcoin anymore. And bam, it starts plummeting. And then right after that, coincidentally, China says, "Eh, we're not really going to let you guys do Bitcoin anymore. And then the plummeting continued. And then uh, coincidentally, all of the exchanges froze. You couldn't get on Robinhood. You couldn't get on the Cash App. Everything froze and you were locked out of Bitcoin transactions. Why did that happen? Could have been because of congestion on the networks. Could have been the blockchains just going too slow. I, who knows? But seems kind of fishy to me. I was very concerned. But my concern didn't last very long. The market has rebounded and it's still not great. It's still looking kind of like a bear market, which means overall the people who want the price to go down are winning. So it's not great. Obviously, this is not financial advice. Investments are very serious. You should always consult a financial advisor before making decisions like that. Definitely just don't do it off of listening to some guy on a podcast who doesn't know what he's talking about. Anyway, there's a huge, huge, massive outflow and then re-entry of cash coming into the crypto market surrounding this bottom where the price hit 30K, which is a major reduction. That's over 50% reduction from the high. And that was not good. A lot of people lost their ass. It's actually a really complicated situation. And I think that it would probably be better if I just stopped trying to dis describe it in uh, such a quick and dirty way and just really do a whole episode on it and explain to the best of my knowledge what's going on. Because yeah, it is something that's interesting and it's something that is a new technology. And even though it is risky and it's gonna be the future. So I kind of feel obligated to share it as I'm learning it, even though I'm still not an expert on it. I just think it's important that other people know what's going on. So as the world changes, they don't feel like they're being left out of the, in the cold and they don't actually get left out in the cold when all of their money turns into dust. You know what I mean? We gotta just be prepared for the future. So I'm just trying to help you guys be prepared for the future in the same way that I'm trying to prepare myself. And it's a learning process and it can be really fun 
but there's also some risk involved, and a lot of people learned that the hard way this week. It's been a crazy week. I'm pretty excited about today's episode because it's with a person who I really admire, and not only that, but she's somebody who really knows her shit. Sitting down to talk with Liz Hilton was delightful. I learned a lot about education, especially mathematics, and you know, really I learned a lot about her as a person. Up until last year when they sold, Liz, along with her husband Ron, were running Penniless Chapel by the Sea, the local mortuary and funeral home. And we get to hear just exactly how somebody falls into such a crazy line of work. Liz has also taught at many different school districts at the high school and college level, and she's still teaching now. I've known Liz a long time. We've gotten to know each other through some adversity, and she's just a really delightful woman. Liz is very educated, very knowledgeable. She knows how to run a funeral home, and she also knows how to do calculus. We get into a lot of stuff about how she fell into the funeral home and what that was like being the person who has to talk to all these grieving people. We talked about loss. We talk about loss in our own personal lives and how that's affected us. I grew up with a guy named Luke Jensen. Luke was a fisherman. He was an athlete, a runner, a really smart kid. He used to go to science camp. He was Jeff Hilton's best friend growing up and they were pretty much inseparable. And me and him became really good friends later on. We went to the same college our freshman year down at Humboldt State and we had lots of connections. It's a small town so everyone's pretty tight. 10 years ago, Luke was commercial fishing and his boat went down and he lost his life. It was a really big deal for me and a really big deal for a lot of the people I'm surrounded by. And yeah, it sucked. I miss Luke a lot. I think about him often. You'll hear me and Liz reference that story a couple times in this episode. And so I just wanted to get on here ahead of that and let you guys know who we're talking about. The Jensen's were really close friends with the Hiltons. They still are close friends with the Hiltons. And Luke and Jeff were super tight. So when Luke passed away, it was a huge impact on Jeff and subsequently his family and really everybody around. But I think Jeff took it harder than anybody else. So I just thought I'd hop on here and clear up any confusion ahead of time. We don't really talk about it all that much, but just sometimes when I'm listening to a podcast and they start referencing inside information, I and I'm just like, if you just say one thing about who this is, it will clear it up and it'll be I'll be able to enjoy this, but it, I didn't want that to happen. So I, I wanted you guys to be able to be in on it. So that's who we're talking about. Chris is Luke's mom, David is Luke's dad, and Meredith is Luke's sister. And they're all really wonderful people. Shout out Jensen's. Love you guys. So despite the fact that we talked about funerals and death and some pretty heavy topics, we even hit cults and mind control stuff at a certain point. Despite those kind of heavier topics, we really had a very lighthearted podcast. It was it was great. Liz has an ability to talk about that heavier stuff with a bit of lightness that somehow manages to make it more palatable. I'm not good at that stuff. I'm, I'm really bad at it, actually. And so having her on here was, was therapeutic for me. I had a really good time, actually. I didn't leave feeling heavy or weighed down by this information. I felt uplifted and inspired. So I hope you feel the same thing, and I really hope you like the podcast. <clears throat> Towards the second half of it, she really opens up, and we start getting into stuff about her personal history and when she was living at a Bible college, and like some of the stuff in there was is pretty interesting. I, I like that. I think you guys will enjoy that part especially because it's right on brand with the ramble. 
Anyway, I will get at it. I think you guys are really going to enjoy it, and I had a great time recording this one. She gave me goosebumps multiple times while I was listening to her talk just because she hit on something that was just pure truth, and I just really related. I hope that you have the same sensation while you're listening and that we were able to capture some of that magic in the final product. So if you're one of those people who has trouble dealing with grief, or if you're one of those math students who likes to ask the question, when in the fuck am I ever going to use this? This is the episode for you. Check out Ramble by the River on Instagram for updates and interesting information, pictures, pretty much just show content. And that's at Ramble by the River on Instagram. And if you want to contact me about guests or hey, you have questions or suggestions or whatever, suggestion box is wide open. Hit me up on any platform. All of that information for contacting me is available in the show notes. Don't forget to subscribe, blah, 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 all that. You know the drill. So without further ado, our guest today ran Pentelus Chapel by the Sea, the local mortuary, for 31 years. They started the year I was born. She taught at Ocean Beach School District, Napa School District, Central Oregon Community College, Clatsop Community College, and probably some other places that I'm forgetting. She was educated at a myriad of places, including Mount Hood Community College, Portland State University, Portland Bible College, and the University of Phoenix. She has multiple master's degrees, a doctorate that she says doesn't count because she didn't finish her dissertation, but I'm counting it. And she's just a really delightful lady. On top of all that, she's my best friend's mom. And she's really good at that too. So please give it up for the lovely and talented Liz Hilton. But I'm still fly, I'm still fly, I know. I'm still fly, I'm still fly, let's go. It could all be worse, I could be a hater like you. It could all be to make the man, but that poison's gonna chew you. Now say it with your chest I'm now I don't care. Okay. I don't care. I'm 65 hair. now. Yeah, yeah. You don't care after 65. I don't know if I ever did. <laughs> my uh, my hair has always been a lost cause anyway. Yeah. Um, yeah, we're just going to jump right in. The, I don't have a whole uh, outline or anything like that. I have just basic bullet points. Basically, I was, we're just going to talk. And if the conversation starts to veer into areas that the audience doesn't understand or whatever i'll try to kind of bump it back but for the most part it's a legit just a real conversation so yeah. it, we know how to do that well we've done it lots of times mm-hmm. it's nice to be having it without a crisis it is nice isn't it? it is nice <laughs> we generally end up talking when something bad has happened that seems like it or when something bad is in the process of happening um but yeah or after it's happened or after it's happened <laughs> And for the most part, you handle those things exceedingly well. Like times when I have been kind of feeling very panicked about, well, I mean, we'll just 
come right out with it. Mostly it's involving Jeff and, yeah. and stuff that's happened if, if Jeff was in a crisis. And I'm always, I just, I'm connect, very connected to my friend. Anytime something happens, I don't really even question it. I just try to go. And you're already there um, <laughs> almost every time. And yeah, it's, it's comforting to know that you are looking out for him more than me even. And because he, I mean, He's a grown-up. He he it knows how to take care of himself. Us, Jeff, but though. yeah, um, I think he really depends on you in particular, especially for the emotional support. I I know he does because we've talked about it. But yeah, what is that like being the the main anchor point for somebody like Jeff, who's kind of a wild man? Well, it's not what I signed up for. <laughs> yeah, but I also think that. We get the kids we get because they need us Mm -hmm. or we have something we can provide them or give them that maybe somebody else couldn't in quite the same way. Uh So I just figure it's part of the job. And I think when you've been in the business I've been in as long as I've been in it. And what business is that? Well, (laughs) I would say teaching high school and college, but really I think what you're talking about is running the funeral home. Well, both really got to deal with a lot of emotions on both fronts in that both of those businesses. Yeah. And actually, one time I gave a talk at when I was teaching at in Central Oregon at Central Oregon Community College. I gave a talk about everything I learned about teaching um, or everything I know about teaching. I learned from the funeral home. That sounds pretty interesting. Yeah, you want to talk a little bit about that? What were your topics of that talk? Well, like it's important for teachers to listen not just to go on and on about their subject and that be the whole focus. Mm-hmm. You have to you have to listen to find out where they're coming from and what you need to provide them for the next step. So you can meet them in the middle. Mm-hmm. And you know, you might have seen that meme where everybody expects grief to be linear uh-huh. and they draw a straight line, but what grief really is like is this jumbled, knotted mess. Well, yeah. Sometimes learning for students is like that as well. Uh huh. That's where the listening comes in to try to figure out where they are in that chaotic mess that's going through their head, especially mm-hmm. when it comes to mathematics. When I went into funeral service, I used to say in Portland, I'd go get my hair cut, and they'd say, what do you do? And I'd tell them what I did, and then dead silence. Uh huh. And then a few snips later, there's curiosity kicks in. If I tell people now, when they ask me what I do, and I say, oh, I teach um, mathematics in the college, dead silence, followed by, I was never good at that. Oh, I, I bet. hate math. I, and I think it's, it's almost a worse response I get to teaching math than I do when I said, yeah, I see dead people. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, where do you think that comes from? I've noticed the same thing. Mathematics seems like the worst uh, subject for so many people in school. I didn't necessarily experience that. Some years it was worse than others, but sure. in general, when I was understanding it, I loved it. It was really fun. And it kind of tells me that a lot of people just aren't really understanding it. Is, is, is that what you think is going well, on? Well, I, I think for so long, we've done a really good job of teaching students that the only thing math is, is algebra. Mm-hmm. And it's so much more than that. And then when we teach algebra, we teach it very theoretically. Yeah. It's usually the way we learned it, and it's what we like about it. Um, and, and it doesn't translate all that well to 
in students' heads. Because it's not like a practical application? Yeah. They always say, when am I ever going to use this? I That's mean, what I was just going to say. And I think, whether you know it, I even tell this to Ron or whoever whoever says this to me, I just look at him and say, you already do. That's in my you, notes. Of my, yeah. You developed this algebraic reasoning and how do you make sense of it without because you have to use it every day mm -hmm. so in your context in what you're doing you know what to do you you're thinking algebraically it's like it's like okay i have to paint this is a cool room by the way thank you i have to paint this and the walls are this high and so you kind of do some calculations they not may not be precise they may not be exact but you look at it and you say okay probably about a gal i need one gallon or maybe i need two and you're sometimes you're off for variables. Yeah, sometimes you're, you're off know. and you're going back and you're, we just redid some rooms in our house and Josh O'Neill came and painted a whole, all downstairs, all upstairs. And I will not tell you how many trips I made <laughs> to Dennis Company, but it was a lot. Because you don't know how much paint yeah. you need until, yeah, yeah I just went through and the same so thing. And so the theory is different from the practical. Uh -huh. And in, in Edu math education right now, there's this switch that's been going on for a little while, and it's finally starting to take hold where algebra is not the be-all, end-all, because okay. not everybody needs it. Mm -hmm. Well, I'd say a certain foundation of algebra. Has that been replaced with something else that's kind of the be-all, end-all, or just expanded to include more? It's more practical. Okay. So you still have algebraic reasoning, but there's a more uh, bigger emphasis on use of technology to do setting up spreadsheets to help you solve and analyze that the data sense. that you see. Yeah. Yeah. With yeah. technology improving. And so they call that more qu uh, quantitative literacy path, which leads ultimately to the study of statistics. Which whereas, is awesome. Yeah. Which is like every day in your whole life. Yeah. If you listen to the news or you turn on, read the newspaper, well, if you can find a newspaper or listen to a podcast or whatever you do to get your yeah. news. The, every single day, it's hard to pick it up and not find some reference to statistics. That is something I think is a major problem to the general public understanding news and understanding what's going on in the world around them is that, in general, people have a very poor understanding of statistics. They believe what they hear. Yeah. And they don't know what to question. If you, if you have even just a really basic understanding of, like, sample sizes and population and yep. how that compares... It's and a lot how easier. samples are chosen. Yeah. Who's doing the study? Selection and if you criteria. start, yeah, if you start looking at the bias that's built into the selection process, to the sample size, to the type of survey you're doing, you start to find institutional racism. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can find a whole, you can find a whole lot. Yeah. Of stuff. You find stuff that you didn't know was there. That's what's so great about st statistics. It helps you draw conclusions. Yeah. Like you can listen to, you can listen to Fox News, and they say, well, our our poll yesterday when we asked this question told us this and I'm thinking well yeah because who is listening to you but your followers or yeah, the who Fox, responds yeah, to a Fox, the Fox News Leaver. poll so then you go I flip over to CNN well we asked this question and our viewers said this well they don't even match up yeah. they're not even the same do you respond to polls no I don't respond to polls no Joe Rogan says on his podcast, I've heard him say it several times, that like, who responds to polls? Usually idiots. So 90% uh -huh. of idiots think this, but who cares? It doesn't matter. And I also don't have a problem lying. <laughs> <laughs> oh, on a poll? <laughs> on a poll. I mean, it depends. If, if 
like in the old days when they used to call you on the phone. If mm-hmm. I got stuck in one and I could, for some reason I didn't have the sense to just hang up, I would start in and depending on who was calling me and what they were saying, I have made up answers before. Yeah. And so I don't put a lot of faith in a lot of things. No. Plus there's always motivations to look at with polls where it's like why are they why are they running this poll in the first place what is the answer that they want and what are the chances that they're going to present an opposing view yeah it's probably very low so it used to be back in the day to get back to the math topic that calculus was that was the college entry level i mean back in the way back in the day mm-hmm. you got prepared to take calculus that and was then, still when i was finishing high school calculus was like I did calculus in my senior year of high school. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and I think calculus is very amazing, especially when you get into multivariable calculus where you're off the plane, you know, just X and Y coordinates and you're in, in the like, field s- space. Yeah. Yeah. Like any point can be defined in terms of three variables. Mm-hmm. And when you start looking at how things change and how you can make things change, it's like I remember thinking at one point, Wow, if you knew enough information about enough data points, calculus can explain everything in the world, in the universe. I, I agree. And it's, it can explain an awful lot. So do you know much about quantum mechanics? Oh, no. <laughs> I, I think it probably I, ties in. I don't either. Yeah. But um, I, I've, I've had that same impulse. Like when you see a really good model of how to represent uh-huh. reality through math, through math yep. it, it almost seems like magic. You're like, it I could describe all of existence with this. Like, it's it's a good system. Well, you can. And just even looking at, you know, if you watch Big Bang Theory, and there's all this, what most people would say, it's just a bunch of gibberish. And I bet some people think, well, what is written on there? And I don't know everything. And I don't, and I don't claim to know, because uh, it gets into the physics realm. That's where, that's where... I can go so far with physics, and I did teach it for one year out at Napa and had a good time, but I'm very limited, Okay. especially when it gets into the realm of electricity. So but I see those symbols, but I can, I can pick out enough to know, oh, what they're looking at there is this, and what they're looking at there is this. In very general terms, is physics more of like describing and trying to explain and predict how things interact or what their properties are versus math is just... Like what? Math's, math is the language that tells you how those things react. Okay, that's what I was like. I'll for. tell you when I took my year of physics, I took it over at Clatsop, and there were like seven of us in the phys. They had general physics, and then they had physics with calculus, and there were seven of us in there. And I think at the time I was forty forty one, and there were six other young bucks in there. 18, 20, 21, and we did everything in groups and we would model certain motions and we'd have like a roller coaster. We'd try to put a a function to a roller coaster. Okay. Because if you have the function, then you can tell, you can answer a lot of questions about. And so what kind of a function would that be? Parabolic. And so um, I would sit there and the We'd be at the computer, and it wouldn't be my day at the computer. We would change roles, and I would sit back, and I'd watch, and I said, you need to change your A value, or you need to change your B value, or why don't you try doing this? And I'd be giving them input, and so the three guys in front of me would go, totally ignoring, totally ignoring what I said. And then a minute, few minutes later, 
they'd say, so I think maybe we should change the A value to this. Great thinking, idea. Yeah, that'd be a good idea. It got so bad, and the instructor that was teaching the class came over one day, and he said, gentlemen, I'm not quite sure you realize it, but you do have someone with their ma- bachelor's, and I was still working on my master's at that time, in mathematics. If she says change this value or this value, if it were me, I would really listen to her. Yeah. Because, I mean, it's kind of, it's almost second nature for me to do that. Yeah. And so for them, it wasn't. Do you see math in everything? Everything. Pretty much. Patterns? Yeah. Things like that? Yeah, but even, oh, patterns, patterns are the foundation. They talk about teaching algebraic reasoning to how, how young can you do that? Kindergarten? Maybe mm-hmm. even preschool, because where does it start? It starts with recognizing patterns. Yeah, algebra is very intuitive. Mm-hmm. It, it, it makes a lot of sense as, you, as you're learning it. You're like, oh, yeah, that's obvious. Once, once you know it, it almost seems I- implicit. Yeah, and activities like even I know I did one once, and I would do this with my math or elementary teacher students a lot. We did this crab activity because, you know, crabbing is the big deal here. So we would make, you know, in, in grade school, you get to incorporate art and math and science, everything in one unit of study. So I remember we did crabs one day. And so we'd cut out of, I'd give them some construction paper, and they'd make little, little crabs, what they think a crab should look like. And then we'd get to talk about and answer questions. Well, how many, does it have six legs? Does it have eight legs? Well, look it up. So you look it up. Ten. Ten? Is that what it is? Yeah, I I actually got into a big fight with my uh, critical thinking professor my freshman year of college down at Humboldt State because she had, it was a critical thinking class. I thought this was a test. So she (laughs) had written on the board that a crab has eight legs like a spider. And so I raised my hand. I was like, false. Crab has ten if you count the two pinchers in the front. The eight little legs and two big, big pinchers. And I thought I was going to get a slam dunk in this critical thinking test. And she's like, nope, sorry, nope, eight legs. And um, it upset me a lot. <laughs> and I ended up making it like my personal vendetta to make her look stupid the whole rest of the term. And How'd you do? Better than I wish I would have done. Yeah. yeah. I regretted it. Well, yeah. A lot. Uh, because she was a nice lady. And I found out towards the end of the class that she didn't want to teach that class. She was asked to teach that class by the university. And I was that asshole sitting in the front row trying to poke holes in everything she said. Okay. But asshole or not, here's the thing. Listening. I can't tell you how many times I have learned new methods of solving equations, new methods of doing things from other students in the classroom. When I was at Iwako, we had a guy from Norway, Alan from Norway, and Gustavo from Peru. Hmm. And the stuff Gustavo, well, this is the way we do this. And I look and I think, what? At first I'd go, what the heck is that? And then when I listened, he'd explain it to me. Um, Then um, a kid over at Napa, I remember very distinctly, I'd have them, they were working on solving equations, and he's drawing, he's drawing a variable, and then he's drawing these loopy letters, and then he's drawing a number, and then he's drawing these. I said, what are you doing? And he was explaining something called an arrow, arrow diagram. Hmm. And the thing about that was, when I listened to him, the theory that's, that's contained in that is absolutely amazing. So fast forward to when I was at Clatsop. There was um, somebody teaching calculus, and I remember she was madder than heck. She goes, these students here are so immature, and they don't know anything. Look at the way this guy, and she slammed this paper down on the table. Look at how he solved this equation. And I looked at it and says, oh, it's an arrow diagram. 
Yeah. She goes, what do you mean that's an error? What? It's not a ladder, you know, because we're all taught to do it vertically. And mm-hmm. and I said, well, no, it's not a ladder, but here's what it does. And I showed it to her and she looks at me, you mean they teach this to them? And I said, yeah, they do. Speaking of that feeling of looking at it and being like, well, what the hell is that? Um, common core math. I've noticed that uh, I've heard this come up lots on other podcasts and stuff that people of my generation who didn't learn it in school are kind of baffled by it and I've looked at it and it seems like a way to do math if you have a lot of extra time on your hands. Do you know how that came to be? I know. Like- oh, well, there's been changes going on in math education from the time of Sputnik. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was two when Sputnik was launched. So if you want to know how old I am, you guys can do the math which I'm not too worried about because I read those posts on Facebook. <laughs> and when the answer is 104, it's 104, not four. Yeah. It, or 78. Or I was looking at one today and I just go. The ones where it's like a, a seemingly uh, simple problem and yeah, there's like yeah. a Yeah, and they just have to comments. use op- order of operation, that's yeah. all. And they claim, well, that was, that was the old math. If you do the new math, the modern math, it's really this answer. And I'm going, what? That's not. No, it, it doesn't even make sense. Math so, doesn't change. Yeah. So there was the the new math that I was um, maybe I was going to say I was a victim of, but that was after Sputnik and all the science. There was a panic, like there uh-huh. usually is, that Russia's going to beat us in the science thing. So we have to change the way we teach math, and the result of that was a lot of set theory, a lot of function theory, a lot of bases, different bases. Like sixth grade, I remember doing being taught base eight in sixth grade. Oh, okay. And it was taught very formally. Like the first is eight to the zero power, eight to the first. All of these ex- exponential patterns with different bases. And that's really all math is. We use uh-huh. base 10. But I thought, why are we doing this? And my parents had the same reaction to that as parents now have to Common Core. Mm-hmm. And I can see the reasoning for it. I don't know. I mean, understanding bases in general, because if you understand bases, you understand your own system of base 10. Extrapolate it out. Yeah. But further than that, look at all the stuff you have going on here. And there's comp- you've got your laptop open. And how do you think your laptop talks? Binary. Binary. It's all binary. It's all base 2. And I have actually taught fifth graders binary. My to the point, fourth graders learning it right now. Yeah, yeah, to the point where they could write messages and little letters to, and in like an hour, that uh-huh. happened in an hour. So how you present it, how it was, was presented to me in, in sixth grade in Mr. Chambers' class, which is not important, as my son would say. I think that's a great detail. Shout out, <laughs> Mr. Chambers. Yeah, I learned a lot from Mr. Chambers. There is that's a real formal way, but you can present it in a way where it's not. Uh huh. And when you do it that way, then you capture them. So math is not about our feelings or our familiarity no. with it. It is just about presenting an idea in a way that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. And, and sometimes yeah. symbolically is the way to do it. Oh. And that's all it is. Yeah, I haven't had to deal much with the Common Core thing. Uh, but Well, okay, back to Common Core. It, it's not so much that we're teaching new algorithms. We're just trying to, well, and I say we, Maybe I should talk they because we don't worry too much about Common Core unless we're trying to align to high school or elementary school. But it's not so much the problem with Common Core isn't what's being taught because what's being taught is there's more than one way to do things. 
which is exactly what I think is at the heart of this thing calling math racist. Oh. They're saying, well, there's not, th- what they're saying is, well, there's not always one solution. Uh-huh. And I'm thinking, well, if you say 2x plus 3 equals 10, yeah, there is only one solution. But if you have this type of problem, yeah, there could be more mm-hmm. solutions. And those solutions could depend on what your assumptions are. Yeah. And I, we already teach that. Yeah. I mean, at least in math for elementary teachers class, I teach it all the time. Mm-hmm. Students will say, well, I didn't know where, what answer you wanted, if you wanted this answer or this answer. Like the difference between accuracy and precision. I mean, like some answers just are within a range. Like yeah. yeah, they are. Yeah, they are. But when you say the math being racist thing, I'm not completely sure what you're talking about. I don't I don't know because when I hear it my brain just goes Yeah. Just goes, Oh, give me a break. Because it's it's one hundred percent possible to have interpretation of data be racist. And uh, actually, it's well, that probably, goes back into the bias part. Yeah, exactly. It's all it's impossible not to have it biased um, if it's being interpreted by a human, not a computer. And I mean, but we have checks and balances to try to get around that issue. I don't know. It depends on what the situation is. That, but that. when you're solving a problem, and I'm talking not an equation, not something that there's an algorithm for, when you've got a situation that you've got to try to get to an answer, you can sometimes interpret that problem different ways Mm -hmm. and students can interpret it different ways depending on their life experiences or their context so maybe your your culture whether it has to do with race or it has to do with other things as well could interpret that problem differently and what I try to teach my students is did I tell you you couldn't think that way? Did I tell you you had to do it this way? Did I tell you you couldn't do it this way? I did no. have teachers that would tell me and that I'd say, not to think and, that way. Yeah, and, I, and I, they'd say no. And I said, then if I didn't tell you, you tell me what assumptions you're using. And I'm cool with that. It may mean I have to figure out a pro- the answer. Yeah, it might make a, a lot more work for you but, in the long run. But, um, but so yeah. I, that's happening now. Mm-hmm. And so I don't know what all the falderall is but then and i don't want to really talk too much about the race thing but i it's almost that's not my that's not my perspective it's probably more We're, based in culture and ethnicity than race per se like if if, if it's yeah, what i think i think we're it's talking more about. culture the testing yeah. uh like standardized testing being written for a certain culture oh, sure. is going to definitely affect who scores high on the and test. And they've been working on that for a long... I mean, yeah. that's been an issue. It's hard to get things perfect. It won't be perfect because we, we're giving these tests to a geographic area the size of this country, and the cultural pockets within that are so varied that it's impossible to get a test that... You can't write a test for that many people that no, all... Can't. They don't all have the same frame of references. No. Yeah. No. I had to take a few classes on writing tests and different kinds of psychological measures in college, and I loved it. It really made me good at taking tests because what Mm -hmm. you have to do is try to put yourself in the mind space of the person who wrote the test if you want to do well on it. And a lot of times that's a white guy. So I I could see how that could be an issue. And terminology that maybe 
is more white than it is black, than it is Asian. Uh, the internet has made it to where cultures are blending much faster than they used to. Sure. So I think that maybe this problem will solve itself. It uh, might. And a hundred years well. from now, we'll yeah. all just be so integrated, it won't matter. It's the process of change, I think, that is hard for people to take. Yeah. And people are very impatient. Mm -hmm. And people think change has to happen instantaneously. Yeah. And I think if it did happen instantaneously, which w is what they're almost trying to insist upon right now. With the protests look what, and yeah, stuff. Yeah. yeah. I, in, you don't have time to consider consequences. And, and there will always be consequences yeah. every time there's a change. Yeah. There always Good is. Good and bad. There always is. Let's get back to math a little bit, though, because the thing you said about people... I'm sure it bugs you too, but it drives me nuts when I hear people say, when am I ever going to use this in real life? Uh, that's not the point. That's not why you're there. It's so that you understand how the world works. You can't use any tool that you don't have. Yeah, exactly. So if you do need it, you're going to need to know it. Yeah. Like if, if you're 45 years old and you say, shoot, we had a problem like this in high school. What was that? How did I do that? At least it's clicking something exactly. in, your, in your head. Those structures even though they might be very rickety by that time, they're still there. Like you still understand the concepts, at least on some level. It's mm -hmm. helpful. Yeah, analogy is like the biggest tool I use for understanding the world. So I'm constantly looking for examples in my memories of situations where I solved a similar problem before. And algebra is huge for me. I, I do use it every day. I, I never have any problem coming up with 100 examples of how people are using algebra, even if they don't know. Yeah. Like, it's just, just being used. But mathematics is way more than just algebra. Yeah. You mean, you've got the statistics part. And even in some universities, you've got the Department of Statistics and you've got the Department of Mathematics. And they're almost treated as two separate things. But then sometimes, like, Portland State's gone back and forth. Sometimes they're separate. Sometimes they're together. There's also the field of logic. Mm -hmm. um, voting theory is mathematical. Um, so many things where math is at the heart of it. Yeah. And um, that's what we have not done a real good job teaching students. That math is the heart mm -hmm. of all of it. And here is where you are using it mm -hmm. every day. And here's how you can use it better. And that's what's at the heart of this quantitative literacy path mm -hmm. that is going on now, which I think is a very good trend. I, I haven't heard much about it, but education is an area that I am really interested in it's so obvious how important it is yeah and a lot of people just shit all over it they, they just want to complain and they just want to like point out the problems we have in education and it's it's frustrating because no one person's going to have all the answers but they're certainly they're certainly going to have a better luck solving problems with a little bit more support from the populace it sure. feels like people have given up on american education and I see it all over the place. It's it's sad. And I, I notice it more now that I'm married to a teacher because every time I hear people shitting on the schools, I'm like, oh, yeah, they're not that bad. I, I know a few people who are really great. Look how well you've done, Jeff. Well, thank you. <laughs> but yeah, exactly. I went to this school district. I know. And um, honestly, I didn't try that hard. I did everything I could to be a jackass. And they still managed to teach me some shit. Sure. And I used it to my advantage. And I, I am endlessly grateful to the teachers who taught me and who tolerated me yeah whatever education i did get from ocean beach served me well mm -hmm. like it, it was yeah high school's a hard that's a hard gig you did a little teaching at ocean beach for high schoolers right <laughs> yeah one year one year and it didn't go one so year. well no it was not a good year that, it yeah. was a, well i would say it was 
it was a, a, a year where I didn't, at the time I describe it as not a good year. In retrospect, it was probably the best learning experience. For you or for the students? For me. Uh-huh. <laughs> for me. Although th- uh, some of the students that I had have gone on to do some wonderful things. There's a quote when I was doing my student teaching. I, we had to do this thing called a work sample. We had to analyze students to death and pretest, protest, put our lesson plans in there and all. And I would put in each lesson, I'd find a quote. And there's a quote, and I don't remember who it's by, but it's a good student can survive any kind of bad teaching. Oh, wow. That's a great quote. And <laughs> on my on my worst days, I think, yeah, well, the good students will be fine. I don't know about the bad ones. Regardless of what situation you're in, if you are a student who wants to get something out of it and make something out of yourself, you can. I really believe that. When you look at the wall of, what's there? Is there wall of fame? Something like that. That's up there? Yeah. Yeah, there's some amazing people who've done some amazing things, and they've yeah. come out of a Waco. Yeah. So. Yeah, it's about what you do with it. Mm-hmm. You have an opportunity, and it, you may not see it as a great one while you're there, but it's about how you wield it. Yeah, yeah. You know? If I were doing, if I were doing that year over again, I would have done things a lot differently. But I can say that after I have the rest of the. Um, years of experience now behind me. Were you a then brand that new teacher? Was, it was my second year. Second year. I had done a year out at San Barlow. My first year was mm. out at San Barlow, which I learned a lot there. But after a walk, oh, I wasn't going to teach again. And I uh-huh. know I was done. I <sighs> was done. And Rick Pass and Tim Lexo came to me. His students were all gone. I'm packing up my stuff. I've got my group of Girl Scouts. We were going camping which maybe it was more glamping than camping. We had yurts because, no, we didn't want to do tents. Uh-huh. <laughs> but we had a good time. Anyway, Rick and I was packing up my stuff, and Rick and Tim came to me, and Rick was leaving Iwako, and he was going to Napa. And he said, I want you to come with me. Mm. I lifted up my hair, and I said, is there idiot tattooed on my forehead? <laughs> I said, no, I'm done. I am done. I'm not doing this anymore. You were just convinced that kids were all going to be the yep. same? yep. I was exhausted. That's a tough age group. I can work at the funeral home. It was a tough year, too, and a lot of the students there went through a lot of... There was some things that that I remember some students going through that year. High school's just tough. It is. It's tough. It almost always is. Yeah. Yeah, it's just tough. I try to remind parents, I try to remind administrators and this push that they have now to get students out of high school with as many college credits as possible mm-hmm. I think to myself and I tell them often you've got a great number of students that are just trying to get through the day they wake up they want to know where they're getting their next meal from they want to know who's going to be nice to them at school they're dealing with self-esteem issues and other emotional issues and the, the mental health issues that go along with that and you're worrying about getting them graduating from college the same time they're graduating from high school. And I don't. It's a lot. It's a lot. And that's fine for the students who are motivated and that's what they want. Yeah. I think a lot of times the students who are doing that, it do, the motivation doesn't always come from within. Mm-hmm. It maybe comes from parental units or outside influences or telling them they have to do it this way that's, when they don't. That's a lot of times where the opportunities are coming from, too, Yeah, which is kind of unfortunate for the kids who 
don't have anybody pushing them. I'm going to play the devil's advocate here for a minute. The kids who are capable of doing that big push, but have just never really been asked to mm-hmm. and never really had the had that kind of thrust upon them. It's probably helpful for those ones. It's just it must be really tricky to find how to serve all of those different types of students all at the same time without having a specialized individualized program. Oh, yeah, it's incredibly difficult, but it's much easier right now because there are programs out there that address that. There's software programs that can identify what and I'm talking at the basic skill level, at least with mm-hmm. mathematics, and they do it in other subjects as well, but it's math that I'm familiar with. So there's programs that will identify the topics you know and let you only work on the topics you don't know. Oh, wow. So instead of having to sit through, especially when you get to a community college or you're at a school, a small school district like Iwako, and the students get kind of get passed along. Mm-hmm. And if you've got a D in Algebra 1 and they put you in Algebra 2, okay, you're doomed from the start. Yeah. Yeah. And then if you try to teach in the middle of the class, I remember Rick Pass saying that to me, well, can't you just teach them in the middle? I said, Rick, there is no middle. There, it's not a bell curve, it's a dumbbell curve. And I don't mean dumb by, like, yeah. stupid. I mean dumb like everybody's on the high end or the low end and there's nobody in the middle to teach to. So what do you need? Do you need two separate classes? But the, the software, some of the software they have out there is pretty amazing. I'm working with Ken and Lindsay's son, Koa. Hmm. I'm working with him because he's been school shuffled yeah. Between here and San Diego and... Makes it hard to find um, a group. Now he's up at Oak Harbor. Yeah. And then remote in the middle. So mm-hmm. he and I are working together on this this pro- software program. And So the software, like, uh, adju- is it an AI? So it, like, adjusts to you as you go? Yeah. It's based on assessing knowledge spaces. So hmm. if you do a problem right, like, let's say you solve a basic equation. It assumes if you can solve that problem, it doesn't just give you credit for solving that. It gives you credit for everything that's involved. Like you can add, you can subtract, you can combine like terms. You know the basic steps of solving um, an equation, all the equality properties. Um, maybe you know get credit for distribution. Maybe you get credit for handling fractions. And all of that gets counted off in one problem. That's really handy. And so it's it, with a relatively sh- few amount of questions like 25 to 30 it can assess what you don't know and what you do know and then it takes you on a path that starts asking you questions really close to what you already know so you may not need a lot of instruction to make that next little jump so it's pretty much trying to achieve a flow state where it balances familiarity with challenge Mm -hmm. and it does that continuously so it's like made a new more efficient system for learning sounds like it's pretty cool. I think it's pretty cool. There's people who really, instructors who don't understand it, and mm-hmm. they just really dislike it. They probably are used to that repetition where you're doing page after page of basically mm-hmm. the same problem over yeah. and over. Oh, yeah. And you have to do it 25 times. I tell students when I'm using that program in some classes, I would say, do you remember being in high school and they gave you a textbook and they say, everybody gets the same assignment and you have to do one through 30 all the odds, because the answer's in the back of the book and you can check them. And you get about halfway through and then you write down the next problem and you go, seriously? Again. Again, I've done this again. 
So I would sometimes give students, if you feel like that, skip ahead and do this one. And I, how, this is how the textbooks are arranged. And here's how you can pick the problems you should do to make sure. Don't just stop halfway through, but pick the ones you want to do. Well, this program does that for you, and it tries to find the sweet spot. That seems like it would get rid of some of the biggest problems with math as a student. More specifically, like that monotonous feeling that you get if yeah. after doing them over and over or that feeling where if you are maybe on the lower side of understanding and you're faced with doing 30 of these problems you mm -hmm. don't even understand the first one that's yeah. crushing that's yeah, that is and why is that crushing it's because you don't have the prerequisite there's some gap in your knowledge so these type of programs work on identifying what those gaps are and filling those gaps before it lets you work on those problems again so these programs are designed so it won't let you work on things you don't have the prerequisite knowledge for. I've known some people who have legitimate psychological problem with math. Oh, where, yeah. Where they will, and I'm sure you see this all the time, where it, it causes them a physical reaction, where oh, they, yeah. they freeze up, they can't talk, Do they can't you, think. Um, that um, movie with Tom Hanks, the baseball movie. League of Their Own? Yeah, League of Their yeah. Own. And there's no, no crying, crying in, baseball. in baseball. So there was a sticker that you could get at math conferences and stuff. And it said, crying? There's no crying in math class. And I used to have that sticker on my office window. Mm -hmm. And I finally took it down because after the third box of Kleenex that year, <laughs> they would just come in and, which yeah. is another, goes back to what I said before, the connection between the funeral home and here. It's okay. Mm -hmm. Here's a Kleenex. Cry if you want. It's good for you. Yeah, um, that's part of that's the a superpower that you have that I want to try to learn is being okay with other people when they're in a crisis, especially if you don't know those people and you don't you're not in it with them. I get into a I get into my own head about it with with grief where I'm like trying to think of how they are seeing me and making sure I want to express my sympathy to them. Mm -hmm. um, but at the same time, I'm not trying to co-opt their grief and make it about me. Like I'm not. Yeah. It's it's a dance that you have to do, and and I I just haven't had enough experience dealing with it, um, and maybe I overthink it, but it's tough. How do you deal with that? It well, it depends on the context. Like somebody who lost a loved one is is probably the thing that gets me uh, the most freaked out. Something you probably deal with an awful lot. Yep. The and I worry about those things too. I think, should I be saying this? Should I say that? Do I, know, I don't know what to say in this circumstance. I haven't seen it before. But then I get to a point where it doesn't matter. I'm here. I'm just going to sit with them. And I'm going to listen because they will talk. They will tell you how they're feeling. And they need somebody to listen. So that's another place where the listening becomes more important than what you have to say. And being there becomes more important than what you have to say. You're being there and just sitting with them and being with them is much more meaningful and valuable than you saying the right words. Because whatever's happened, you can't fix it. There, are no there right words. isn't anything you can say that's going to fix what's happened. Whether it's, it's someone whose grandma died at 104 doing what she wanted to do or just fell asleep and didn't wake up. Or it's something more traumatic, mm -hmm. you know, whether it's a traffic accident or whether it's a murder or whether it's suicide or whether it's whatever it is, you can't fix it. No. And, and so you shouldn't even try, Ju but just being present and being there because you can see and, and 
it's it's like the gathering and I remember when Luke died and we would gather at, at Jensen's house and just being there is what they wanted and what they needed at that time. Yeah. And sometimes we'd be talking about Luke and sometimes we'd talk about something that wasn't even related and maybe laughing about something else. I remember sitting there and we we're trying to figure out because Chris has relatives, you know, in, in England and different time zones and well, if we have the service at this time and we broadcast it or record it, when should they turn in? And just people with their phones out trying to figure, okay, it's eight hours difference from here to here. But then if you're here, you got to add two hours. And if you're in France, you got to subtract what, well, there's more math right there. Yeah. But it, trying to, to do that, which caused laughter. Um, which is great. That's, is, that's good too. Mm-hmm. Um, but the just being present, and I know that, that's what they needed. When I went and got Jeff out of rehab, he was in rehab when Luke died up in Montana. And the, in, the minute I knew what had happened to Luke, all I could think about was I have to get Jeff. It's also the same thing that was coming from Jensen's. By the time I got to Spokane, Chris called me and she says, we need to see Jeff. Yeah. And I said, I'm going to get him right now and it wasn't that they it wasn't it wasn't i don't even know if it was anything logical it was this i remember dave saying i just need to know jeff is all right they were very close for a oh, very they were. very long time they were i actually i was just talking with melissa about this the other day that's one of the times i remember having that feeling of mm-hmm. like not knowing exactly where how i'm allowed to feel because I was good friends with Luke too, yeah. But we had never had the connection that him and Jeff had. They grew up together, and they were they were very close. And I might have even spent more time with Luke in the last couple of years of his life because we went to the same school mm-hmm. down in California, yeah. and we had a lot of similar friends. He was one of the only people I knew down there, so I I like looked to him for support. But even with that, I like I felt weird about speaking at his funeral. Did you say anything? I did. I don't mm-hmm. remember what I said. I think I said pretty much that. that like Luke is, was like my lifeline down there. But uh, I just remember feeling like weird about it and almost like I didn't earn it because um, I could like, see his parents and, and Jeff was there and mm-hmm. everyone's crying. But it's just weird. I don't, I don't really know what is behind that. But mm-hmm. yeah, that – was a horrible experience. That's an interesting thing you said that you didn't earn it, that you didn't earn your grief. And I would say, yeah, you did. It just, it's just everybody's relationship is different. Yeah. Your relationship to Luke didn't have to be the same as my Jeff's relationship to Luke or um, Paul Blaylock's or Michael Leach's relationship to Luke or mm-hmm. Lindsay's or or Chris and Chris and Dave, they're really, and even Meredith is different than her parents. I mean, the relationships are different, and the and the experiences you shared together are different, and that causes your grief to be different. But it's still, it's you've got your own, you've yeah. got your own, and how do you? No, it's just it's it's a tough thing because this grief deal, you just got to walk through it. When it yeah. happens, there's. You just have to go through it. You can't run from it. You can't hide from it. You just have to somehow sort it out. And the best thing we can do is just let them in whatever way they need to. And sometimes it's just sitting there listening. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's just 
here's a Kleenex. Yeah. You want some more Kleenex? Or it's okay, come over. And if you just want to talk, just let, let's just talk. How did you guys get involved in the funeral home in the first place? <laughs> that was... <laughs> I've, I've said this to lots of students when they've come in my office and they say, I don't know what I want. I say, well, what do you want to be like my advice is, what do you want to be when you grow up? I have no idea. And, I, and I've said to some of them, not all of them, I said, be careful um, because I didn't either. <laughs> and look where I ended up. That was kind of how it happened. Just I had this curiosity. I used to really love horror movies. Uh-huh. I mean, from the time I was little, like little preschool, watching Outer Limits and Twilight Zones. And we were laughing the other day because one of the things on DirecTV was playing this old B movie called The Crawling Eye. I loved that movie. I, 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 every time it was on, I would watch that movie. And I remember coloring pictures of this big eyeball attacking cabins in the mountains <laughs> in, when I was in you know, kindergarten, first grade, but all that stuff. So that's you've always what I, had a flair for the macabre. Yeah. Okay. I've never thought of it that way, but yeah. Is that the right word? I think so, probably. Um, and this kind of curiosity. I remember being in high school or, or maybe younger and driving past funeral homes and wondering, is there a dead body on the other side of that window? Why is that window frosted? Is that where they keep them? Mm -hmm. um, if I walk in, will there be one right there? And I didn't... I didn't know. Mm -hmm. Now, but I was curious. So when I was, was I 20? My dad died when I was 20, not when he was 20. Uh, when I was 20, and my mm -hmm. brothers were 18 and 16. Bad timing. Yeah, yeah. He was 43, just a few weeks before his 44th birthday. And How did um, he pass away? He had a stroke. Oh, man. He had strokes when he was younger. He wasn't overweight. He wasn't, if you looked at him, you wouldn't think he had the standard, you know, somebody who died young of a stroke. Uh -huh. you know, he, I have no idea if he had high blood pressure. But he had, um, I remember growing up, he always wore these special shoes. They were like these big boot kind of things. And he had a limp and he had problems with his right hand. Um, and we were always told he had polio oh. when he was young. And then when we di he died, we found out that's not what he had. He'd had some strokes when he was a teenager, and it was something congenital in his brain, something with the vessels, mm -hmm. which I don't know if it was similar to, uh, similar to what, remember Luke, when he had his... I do, yeah. Issue, and they life lighted him? In seventh grade? Yeah. Yeah, we were in PE class, and mm -hmm. we were all running to go to finish the class, we, and there was this, this line of those concrete barriers. Yeah. And he, he went to jump over the barrier, and he, like, jumped way too late and, like, ran into it. It, it looked neurological uh -huh. uh, from, from just watching it happen and fell hard on the ground. Yeah. And they picked him up, and they carried him out and called his parents, and we heard later that day that he was being life flighted. Or, and I don't yeah. think that was a stroke he had because it, it was, I think it was more neuro neurological. It had some of the same symptoms, mm -hmm. I think. Yeah. And there was pressure on his brain. Yeah. So dad had that a few times when he was around the age of 14, 15, 16. And what we found out after he died, his parents, my grandparents were both having affairs at the same time. Oh. And he found out about both of them and they both told him separately 
don't tell your dad. Oh, don't great. tell your mom. So the reason they used the polio story was to cover up the truth. Which was that which he had they, stress-induced? That's what they were afraid of. Uh -huh. Now, in retrospect, my mom had told me it was probably a congenital, uh -huh. something with the vessels and a congenital thing. So, um, Carrying secrets around in your head. It's not good. No, it's high stress. It's not good. Anyway, so... We found out all that afterwards, but my mom and dad had been divorced. I, I got when I was 18, and so this is like two years later. My dad had been remarried for about a year, I think, to a cheap mom imitation. Uh -huh. You know how sometimes that happens. Yeah. She was like a cheap mom clone, and they were both nurses. They were what, anyway. God, that must have been weird. It was weird. It was weird. But when he died, his wife, in, they lived in Mount Lake Terrace, north of Seattle, and his wife said, I'm going to have him cremated, which I didn't know. I mean, I didn't know any different. And my brother Dennis was in, had just joined the Air Force. He was stationed in Germany at the time. But my brother Mike was still living with my mom. And their house had burnt down like a couple years before. And a few years before, and he was the one who woke up and saw the flames and got everybody else out of the house. Mm -hmm. He was still having nightmares from that. Oh. So my mom called me up and said, your brother Mike has a real problem with your dad being cremated. And she didn't feel she could call my dad's wife and, and tell her. So she said, why don't you tell her? All right. So I did. And her response was, fine, but don't get your, your mom is not to get involved. You kids handle it. And I'm going, okay, 20, we're 20, 18, and 16. My brother flew in, got, you know, leave from Germany. And we had to find the burial place and deal with the funeral home down here to make the connection. And we weren't getting, we weren't supposed to tell mom or let mom help. And Jan wasn't going to help us. So I have this image of the three of us in a phone booth in Portland looking through the yellow pages. As kids, basically. Under, yeah, under funeral homes. They had Lincoln Willamette. They have Willamette National Cemetery and Lincoln Memorial Park across the street. And Dad wasn't a veteran, so we went to Lincoln Cemetery and went to their office. And we just walked in. And it kind of relates to something you said about you don't want to make their grief your grief. I walked in, uh, we walked in, the three of us, not knowing a thing that was going on, not having a dime between us. And this man walks up and I, he was in a dark suit and I have this memory, whether this is right or wrong, of him wearing this dark hat. Like, I don't know if it was a top hat or not. And then like Lurch, if you would say Lurch to me, that's what I would tell you he uh -huh. looked like. Now, it's probably not even reality, yeah. but that's the memory I had. And I remember thinking, why do you look so depressed? It wasn't your dad who died. And so it kind of relates, yeah. relates to that. And so we went through the whole thing and got dad buried down here. And years later, when I went into the funeral business, I always wondered when I would meet with families, this, this experience I had with dad I never wanted to make their grief my grief. Mm -hmm. At the same time, you don't want to be flippant. Yes. 
you don't want to act like it's no big deal. Yeah. Because it's a very big deal to the people it's happening to. So one thing that um, I always would do is I wouldn't even pick up, you know, because there's all this paperwork to fill out. I bet. I wouldn't even pick up my pencil. I would just sit there and just start out. Tell me what happened. Just being two humans. Yeah. Tell me what happened. What happened? Or tell me about your dad. Tell me about your cousin. Tell me about this. And then just sit back. Um, sit back and just listen. And most of the time, they have something to say. And and Ron picked up on that because I used to do that. Ron does the same thing now, or he did when we still had the funeral home. And when you when they were able to tell a story and then laugh or smile, then you know, okay, now we can go on. That's your but end. it takes time. Yeah, but that takes time. Dealing with somebody, um, dealing with a family, dealing with people at the time, there it's the most vulnerable. Yeah, whether they were close to the person or not, or whether they, I shouldn't say close, I should say whether their relationship was good or bad, whatever it was. Both tragic. Yeah. It still has an, has an effect. And just getting them to, to talk and open up and just listening, then, then you know what it is you can do to help. Mm -hmm. And some people let you in and some people don't. When they let you in, it's almost almost like a spiritual connection or a, a, a I, I don't even quite know how to say it, but it's a very sacred thing uh -huh. to be in the position of doing something for people at a time where no one else has the same skills you do. Yeah. Yeah, that's crucial. And that's, um, that's probably what I'm, I'll miss the most, what I do miss the most. Um, so how long has it been since you guys sold? Mm, it was last July. Last July. So not that long after mm. doing it for what twenty five years. It's coming up on a year. Oh no, we had the we had the funeral home for thirty thirty something. almost thirty a little over thirty one years. Wow. Yeah, that's like since nineteen eighty nine. April April Fool's Day of nineteen eighty nine. And I had worked in the business. I graduated from Mortuary School in nineteen 86. Lindsay and I always say Lindsay and I went to mortuary school together. You're pregnant? Yeah. Um, right after I started. Um, yeah, right after I started, I was pregnant with Lindsay. So you started mortuary school pregnant with Lindsay, and then you got a master's degree and then subsequently a doctorate, right? I have an associate's degree in mortuary science. Okay. I have a bachelor's degree in mathematics. I have a master's degree in education. I have a master's degree. <laughs> Keep going. Sounds like a list. Yeah. I have a master's degree. It's called an MST, Master of Science in Teaching Mathematics. Um, my associate's degree is from Mount Hood. Um, my All my other degrees, those three, my bachelor's and my two masters are from Portland State. And then... I started a doctoral program to get my EDD in curriculum and instruction, and I finished the program, but I did not finish my dissertation. Mm. The dissertation, a lot of things happened. Um, COVID? No, it wasn't. It was, it was before that. But we had some issues with... Um, well, Luke died in the middle. I was uh -huh. in the. I was actually working on. I think my literature review 
when Paul Blaylock called me and told me about Luke. And I remember stopping that night in Spokane and getting, right after I talked to Chris, and trying to finish a paper. And I finally... I finally just emailed the professor and said, it's not, there's not a way, there's not a chance it's going to happen. So I didn't do that assignment. Was that 2011? Was it? It sounds I was writing around a paper. there. I was writing a paper when I heard also. I was sitting on my couch and I saw somebody post on Facebook, oh my gosh, Luke didn't come back last night. And I thought like, oh, Luke must have been drinking or partying or something. He didn't come home. I didn't think of it as a big deal. And then I went and found that it was that the boat had gone down and just like it was such a shock i went home straight straight yeah, away yeah 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 so i didn't finish um i didn't do it but um there were other some other factors there were some other factors and so i'm what they call i have my doctorate but i'm add so i can say i have my edd but i have to put the letters abd after it which means all but dissertation uh-huh and I broke a lot of dissertation rules in picking the topics I picked. It was I made it too personal. Mm. Um, and then this is through University of Phoenix, and I will just say, it was I did not get the support I needed from them. Oh, good. Well, because I make fun of them sometimes, so now I don't feel as bad. Yeah. Well, I can tell you stories. I won't go into it now, but I can tell you lots of stories about just bad practices on as administration. No, actually, actually, the classes were good. The way it said, there was a lot of good things about, I learned a lot about online learning. If I haven't done, if I hadn't have done those three years um, online, I probably wouldn't have been able to survive remote learning as long as I did. Mm-hmm. It's gotten so much better. It is. I took calculus online uh, in high school and it was a disaster. I, I had such a hard time and the teacher who was supposed to be helping me wasn't helping me. So I, I was just in over my head. And then I took some online classes 10 years later and it had already improved so much and i imagine mm-hmm. now after the push from the covid stuff improving the technology even more it's probably pretty good oh yeah i'm getting to be a pretty pretty good at zoom mm-hmm. <laughs> more than i more than i've ever wanted to be i don't like it you know there's problems but anyway you can't call me a doctor because i don't have my dissertation but by the time i got to that point i thought i don't need this yeah. i got what i needed out of it and it enabled me to do a lot of things. Mm-hmm. Um, well, yeah, I mean, what could you what could you do with with the dissertation that you couldn't already do with all your other credentials? You've no, got a lot of stuff. No, and I knew exactly what the outcome of the dissertation was going to be. Mm-hmm. I knew exactly what I wanted to research and what I wanted to collect data on. And I already knew what the outcome was. And I didn't need... What was your topic? Resistance to change oh. and teaching style. Mm-hmm. And because in education, it is all about change. Yeah. And it related to some experiences I had over at Clatsop Community College with some individuals over there. Um, okay. With, yeah, with some individuals over there. And teachers or students? In, um, teachers. Mm. No, students were great. And most of the teachers were great. But there were... There were some negatives. Um, CLASP is very small, and because of that, there's a lot of one-person departments. Oh, yeah. With the exception, really, of math and English, it's one-person departments. Which are notoriously resistant to change. Yeah, so you get used to doing what you want when you want and not having to work with anybody else. Yeah. And so when a department needs to work together, and, you know, these changes that happen throughout education process, 
that's what I, that's what I was trying to document. Mm-hmm. And I already knew. I, I didn't need that. What was changing? Teaching style, becoming more student, the, the push towards becoming student-centered and learn versus instructor-centered. So less lecturing, more interacting? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That works a lot better. Yeah. Having the, I'm kind of a constructionist in the the sense of I think students can construct their own knowledge. Uh If you provide, if you provide the proper environment, you don't have, yeah, and and, and scaffold it. You don't need to tell them every single thing and you don't need to talk for one to two hours straight. Yeah. And if you didn't say it, and you you get this feeling, if you didn't say it, if you didn't say it, they're not going to get it. Or but if you said it, they should get it. Mm-hmm. You know, you can say something once, and you think it should go into their head. I said it very clearly. I explained that. Awesome. But, you know. So it's a collaborative process. Yeah. You're, you're building, building these n- structures of knowledge in their heads with them. Yeah. Rather than just talking at them. So I wanted to see the correlation between um, there's a, an instrument that measures a person's resistance to change. And mm. you, get, you take it and you get categorized as a certain type, like an early adopter. Like personality a, test. Yeah, personality like inventory is similar. And then at the same time, I was going to give those same instructors another little test to take called the PALS. And it assessed how student-centered or instructor-centered you were. Because mm-hmm. I think a lot of people think they're student-centered, but they're not. Oh. Oh, yeah. I'm very student-centered. And you walk by their classrooms day after day after day, and they are still the only one doing anything in the room. Uh-huh. Yeah, it doesn't make a lot of sense. Kids need to move. Teenagers up through young adults need to move around, and, and it probably helps to be engaged in the material rather sure. than just sitting there passively. Sure. So now you put bring Zoom into it. Yeah. More passive learning. Yeah, there you go. And you can do breakout rooms and having ha- structuring breakout rooms so that they're do what they're supposed to do. It's like beat your head against a wall. Some days it works well. I'm doing my last class right now, the last class in the math for elementary teacher sequence. And so I've had these students all for a, for a year. And I can put them in breakout rooms and as most of the time, and they're better. There's more communication when I go in and spy on them, and mm-hmm. there's more communication. They're sharing, you know, group projects, and they're do- doing that. But it's taken a year to get there, and oh, I bet. you can't do it in a. Ter- it's hard to do in a term, mm-hmm. and so then getting a new class every. Well, will some of that kind of carry over to the next term, so that the time next time you get a new group of kids, they already kind of are prepped and ready for that sy- like system. Yeah, well, in theory. Hopefully. In theory. But there's still a lot of, you know, it used to be my dog ate my homework. Mm-hmm. Now it's, oh, my internet went down. Yeah. My well, internet, I don't have, do? I have a yeah. bad connection. Now, yeah. down in central Oregon, there's a lot of that because it's rural, like here. Mm-hmm. Like, we don't have internet at our house. CenturyLink oh, just bailed on us. Oh, they're gone now? Well, I they, bailed on them first. Well, that's what we did a few years ago when I went to Bend. Ron didn't need it, the internet because he used the funeral home and... So now when I called CenturyLink to get it back, that's the biggest fiasco. Oh, man, I bet. Finally just sent their box back, and they said, you can't get it there. They're a terrible company. Yeah. It, I mean, I, maybe they do other stuff, but as far as providing internet to Chinook, they suck. Yeah, they do. So I've got my little AT&T data box, but uh-huh. I still, the one day I thought, okay, because I would do department meetings there. I do one-on-one office hours 
on Zoom, but the day I tried to do the whole class. Yeah. Well, we have fiber optic internet down here. If you ever need to use it, feel free. Jeff will give you the password. (laughs) Um, You can come down here anytime. Yeah. So I've been using using Dan Hickey's condo. Oh, yeah. I'm in Long Beach and condo. Mm -hmm. I always tell the students go, you're in a condo. And I said, well, it's a beach condo. So it's like a cabin Mm -hmm. kind of sort of. Thing. Yeah, a condo it's not that here luxury. is not always the same as a condo yeah. in the city. I mean, it works real well. I shouldn't, I shouldn't, mm-hmm. you know. I'm and I'm grateful to be able to use that. Yeah, um, yeah. We need some rural broadband uh, attention out here. Yeah, so time. I'm putting my hope in with Elon Musk. Me too. In on um, a lot of no, I'm levels. on the Starlink list. He's got my oh, yeah? 99 bucks. He's supposed to be sending me sometime this year. My and that's satellite internet, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. cool. So every time he launches. Uh, satellite i think you keep launching those things yeah i wonder how many they've got up there now for starlink probably a lot a few hundred yeah maybe it's more maybe it's less that man is amazing i didn't realize he had asperger's i didn't either until the snl thing live yeah i mean in retrospect it's pretty obvious uh but i guess i just try not to put people in boxes yeah i know (laughs) Um, that's that's usually a good thing he's clearly a strange dude and communicates differently than a lot of other people but i just thought that was because his head was so full of thoughts that it makes him kind of talk different. Plus, yeah, I've never actually heard him talk. Oh, really? I don't, I don't, yeah. I'm a big fan. I follow a lot of the stuff he does, mostly for, for financial reasons, because every time he says jump, the financial world says how high. Uh-huh. And I want to get in on that because it's it's easy money. And um, the Dogecoin thing, have you paid any attention no, to that? No, but, but I, just, I just, Ron brought it up this morning. And I thought, well, fine, let's just Google it and we'll figure out how to get some. Um, yeah, it's not hard anymore. I don't under I don't understand cryptocurrency. I don't it's like I it's like electricity to me. Yeah. I don't it it's the same way it was with a lot of different concepts that, that just seem too hard to comprehend until you let yourself realize that they might actually be simpler than that. And you might actually already understand it and you just weren't able to see that it's really just like a consensus program that where all these different computers have to agree that this is the truth it's a way to it's just a way to ensure security basically spread across a huge amount of different computers instead of just instead of the bank saying hey we have this register and it says that you have a thousand dollars in the bank here instead of them being the the sole holder of that now it's spread out across everyone okay so so I read this book. Well, I didn't didn't read because I don't read books much anymore. I listen to them. Me too. But and I still say read because I want people to think I'm smart. Yes, that's right. So it was by Jim Patterson and Bill Clinton, oh. which tweaked my interest just a little bit and was called The President is Missing. And mm. the whole premise of the movie is some foreign government. I don't know if they, I don't know which one it was. And so I don't want to say the wrong one and offend the wrong group. Uh-huh. <laughs> but it was somebody, somebody like offshore, somebody got into the United States computer system. Uh-huh. And basically, by shutting down the computer system, they were shutting down everything. They were shutting down, you know, like utilities, all the utilities. Traffic lights to mm-hmm. investment accounts. Yeah. And 
when you shut down investment accounts, it messes with people. There's no record of how much money you had in your retirement account anymore. No record of what you have in. So it, that was kind of the whole premise mm -hmm. thing. So when you start talking about what you're talking about now with the cryptocurrencies, I think, well, what if somebody comes in and shuts it all down? Then where does it go? Well, there's always that possibility. Anytime we go digital, we're dealing with that. But we're all digital now. Yeah, and that's where I was headed. It's that. It's like that now. And and really, if it's a centralized place where all this information is stored, it's much, much easier to get in there because you only need one point of entry. Mm -hmm. uh, but if it's decentralized, then you need to be able to enter it on the distributed network. And, and if you can manage to infiltrate such a secure system, yeah, take it. You earned it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But I don't think you can. Um. It's, I'll probably eat those words when I'm broke, but. Yeah, probably, yeah, maybe. Uh, you know, maybe. one solar flare, one mass coronal ejection, we're all fucked anyway. Yeah, it, we are. It's, so. it's okay. So. It's, it's really, it's come, for me, it's come down to like, I see the world is changing and it's moving in this direction. And I remember being a kid and being like, I really wish I would have got in on Yahoo when I had the opportunity. I'm like 16 years old feeling the, the regret for not getting in early on these things because it's, you see these patterns of these breakout technologies, and if you're not in early, you're getting left behind, and eventually you're going to have to adopt anyway. So I'm yeah. trying to I'm trying to get ahead of that with yeah. the crypto, but it is a little scary. Yeah, yeah. Well, I remember when the Apple iPhone first came out. Mm -hmm. I said to Ron, "We need to buy some Apple stock," and he poo pooed it. It was expensive. And then. our fight, well, got a lot more expensive. Our financial guy said the same thing mm -hmm. and it started going up like rockets and I just would sit there and go why does nobody listen to me why are you two not listening to me and then it took a a little dive bomb in there yeah in 2008. so when it did I said okay let's get some oh smart thinking so I got some and it just went Ch -ch -ch. And they play, but they placated me. While they were letting me do this, they said, this is a, an emotional decision and blah, blah, blah. And then I just sat back and watched it go up and up and up. And that's and what- And split several and times. And that has financed, I can't tell you. Well, it financed part of my down payment for my house in Bend. It financed three years of grad school. It financed, I mean, there was a lot of things we mm -hmm. pulled out. And then every time we just kept getting it, we should have just left it in there and not touched it. You'd be millionaires. Yeah. So I remember my stockbroker when it went, I mean, it was the best performing stock um, in our portfolio. Mm -hmm. And he came down to the beach one time. We were sitting at the, we'd always meet at the funeral home and he'd come in. I'd look at him. I said, well, Bill, you ready to hire me? Mm -hmm. And he just smiled and he says, any fool can hit a hole in one once. <laughs> I said, whatever. <laughs> How did you know it was going to be so big? Just because the iPhone was so, the iPod was my first glimpse. Mm -hmm. That was so revolutionary. And now, um, and then when the iPhone hit. And Apple is so much, I just dislike PCs uh -huh. because I, they're so well, they're just—that's the double-edged sword of the PC. Yeah, is, is, they're complicated. They're versatile too. They are, but way more than this machine. But yeah, but I'll take this one. You don't. It. It's like this doesn't even come with a manual. No, nope. it doesn't. It's you intuitive. just open it up, and you know what it is you're supposed to do. That's what this iPhone does. Yeah, and I had. It's what. It's what Jeff has now. 
his smartphone, which oh, the still shows Windows up phone as or Google phone. Yes, yeah, yeah, it still shows up on my phone. I get a text from it that says Mariah because it was her phone when she worked for us. Oh, that's funny. And Jeff and I were driving over to Astoria for something, and I've got this phone, and I said, "Okay, I'm going to program this," and nothing made sense to me. Yeah, nothing made sense. So I usually I do pretty well going back and forth between Apple products and PC products. Me but too, in general. It's the thing that's telling is. The more the PCs more and more are trying to mimic. Yeah, like Windows. What was it? Windows ten or Windows eight? The one that where they switched everything to tiles. Where I was like, oh my god, it's horrible. I I, hate it. I really didn't like it, and I feel like that's what they were trying to do. They're trying to mimic the mobile. That's what. Yeah, that's what Ron has on his, um, his desktop that we brought down from the funeral home, and I look at that, and he asked me questions, and I said. I don't yeah, know what to tell you. Depending on what version it was, some of one of them didn't even have a desktop option. It was just like tiles, and that was it. Yeah. And now, now it's back. And to the you tiles can do they both. flip. They you stare yeah. at them, and they're always flipping. Mm-hmm. You go wait, which tile is it that I wanted? Now I have to wait for it to come back. Yeah, they're not icons like they used to be. Uh, they're live little updating things. I don't know. It yeah. didn't connect with me. It's weird. I used Windows Vista though all through college, and people talked tons of crap about that one and i loved it it was it was a pretty decent operating system but really nothing compares to ios or mac os i don't think so it's much much better but there's still a bias um there's still a bias against that yeah in some in some places i've run into it at if i i have a really i know my system with doing remote learn teaching and i have my macbook my whatever version i bought macbook air is what i've mm-hmm. got and I've got my iPad, and I just zoom over. I do the whiteboard on the iPad, and I you got them connected. Yeah, everything's nice. Every and does you know through, you through have the an Apple air. Pencil? Yeah, I have an Apple oh, yeah. pencil. That's like awesome. They really are. They, I, I'm it, shocked at how accurate and little like just down to the pixel you can get yeah, that thing. Yeah, it's amazing. I like to draw with mine. Mm-hmm. Um, I I mean I haven't done it for a while. I've been busy, but when I go to conferences. And I'm just sitting there. I have a really hard time listening unless my hands are doing something, yep. my, my eyes are doing something. Yeah, I always have to be taking notes too. Yeah. And so I draw. I, mm-hmm. I Mostly just like eyeballs. I like to draw eyes. Eyeballs? Yeah. I like to draw eyes. Like if I can achieve an eye that looks alive, I'm really stoked because that's hard for me to do. And there's something about that that's always kind of tripped me out that you can just like draw lines on a piece of paper and it like becomes alive. Yeah. Like you can, when you look at a really good photorealistic drawing and it is looking back at you, there's some kind of a magic there that I, I, to be able to capture that and create it is really cool to me. But I don't have really the drawing skills to draw the whole face. So I like YouTube how to draw an eyeball and I'll just draw eyes. So I have a bunch of really cool looking drawings of eyes in my tablet, but, and trees. I like to draw eyes and trees. Sometimes I put eyes on the trees, but... Yeah, the Apple Pencil made that a lot of fun. So I do that, but when I took it the day when I was down in Bend and I had to leave my house because they were inspecting it it, when I put it up for sale. So I went down to do all my work at the office. And so I went there and tried to hook it up with my iPad. Uh Uh-huh. Didn't connect. Didn't have the right dongle. Well, I no, I didn't have any dongles. Well, I did have, but nothing... And I started, and I don't freak out very often. I usually take things. Things usually work out. Yeah. So I tend not to panic 
I tend not to get, but I was stressing out. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, three, I mean, there's not many people in the office down at the College in Bend during COVID. Everybody's kind of locked in their own office. Mm -hmm. And they could, my tension was rising because I start talking to myself and talking to the computer and a little cussing out here and there. And... So one of the tech guys, he comes over and he says, okay, just calm down, just calm down. And I've got this MacBook Air. And he says, you just need this um, USB port. I don't have a USB port. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty soon I had a drum stand, a webcam that got stolen from another office. I had a college laptop sitting there open. I had my iPad. I had like five different devices open. My desktop, mm -hmm. my i, my two laptops my iPad, trying to run this class. Yeah. And because they've got a firewall up mm -hmm. that won't let the things talk wirelessly. Oh, yeah. And it only affects a Mac. It doesn't affect yeah. PCs. That's the thing about the Macs is that they're really great, but you got to go all in because it's a walled garden. If you don't have yep. the right plugs, you're not getting in. Like, so when we bought Jeff's, when we when Jeff got his and he went to pick it up in Portland, I ordered, okay, give me that dongle and I want this cord because mm -hmm. they have those funny little connectors. I forget. Yeah, what the newer ones now. they only have one port. It has, or I mean two, but they're the same. Yeah, that's all they are. Yeah, so you got to have your USB C. So your dongle's fancier than mine. I have a couple different ones. I I like this one because I had one that clamped right to the side. Yeah, but that's what mine does. You can close the lid. Um, so really? Yeah, without br breaking that hinge. Hmm. So I just ditched that one and got the more external version that lets me connect to the TV and stuff too. Yeah. But yeah, it's I'm pretty into technology stuff. I've always thought it was just really fun. And Apple does it the best. I think they do. They really do. And yeah, like we were talking about when, when they first became the Apple that we know today, which was 2007, when they released that iPhone, it changed the whole world. Everybody has an iPhone in their pocket. It did. And even the Androids, it, it's like, how Apple-like can we be exactly. and still hold enough and still be unique enough that we're a different company? To get that market share. Yeah. But if they could be but Apple, they just, would be. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. 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 They're pretty good. The, um, yeah, what's his name? The guy who's the CEO now, Tim, Tim Cook. Cook. Yeah. He doesn't seem like he's quite as much of a idea man as Steve Jobs was, but he sure can run a company well. The, the stock prices continue to climb. Yeah. Uh, I mean, they haven't gone much in the last six months, but yeah, it's a good company. Yeah. I like it a lot. Yeah. So... I my I'd want an Apple Watch. I've wanted an Apple Watch since they came out with Apple Watches. Mm -hmm. And Ron does not want me to get an Apple Watch. He just if and so we were even talking about with the kids this weekend. Lindsay and Ken were down and Jeff's over the house and they said, "Well, and Ken got Lindsay a Fitbit watch for oh, her birthday because she good didn't too. want an, she didn't want an Apple Watch. How come? Because she's her dad's daughter. Well, what's I don't their know. Beef? What's their beef with Apple Watch? I don't know. The tracking? Too convenient? <laughs> they don't want to be <laughs> able to good. be contacted all the time? <laughs> Too good? Because if you have the Apple Watch, if somebody calls you, you can answer it with your wrist. Yeah, see, that's what I want to do. Uh-huh. I want to look like Dick Tracy. Yeah. Talking into my, that's exactly what it is. Talking in my arm. That's what I want to be. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I was, I've been trying to think. I was at Costco with Ron, and I was looking at Apple Watches, and he didn't even pay any attention. Mm -hmm. So the kids said, well, what if you get one? Will dad notice? Mm -hmm. Well, has he noticed this about you? Nope. Has, did he notice when you did this? No. Um, 
And Lindsay said to me, well, you can say whatever you want because you know dad's not going to listen to this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because he's not a, that's not his. Not his bag. Uh-uh. Uh-uh. I don't know Ron very well, which is actually weird considering I've known him since I was 10 years old, really. People um, don't. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. He seems like a very private person. He is. He is. So you guys spent some time living separately. How did that affect your marriage? I think it's – we've always been pretty independent mm -hmm. because Ron's always been – even when we were going out, I met him at a print shop in Portland. That, and he's a printer, right? And he's a printer, yeah. Our garage is full of printing equipment. Old um, stuff, too. Jeff's told me oh, about – Oh, yeah, like, it's old stuff. Yeah, it's like old traditional old, printing old, stuff. Yeah, old, old lead. Old intertype and mm – -hmm. He no, yeah. Linotype is the is the more popular version, but intertype is what he has, and that's not going to be anything anybody that's oh, listening to this even knows <laughs> even knows about. We got into the nitty gritty but, details of typeface. Um, yeah, but he printing. makes. He has. They all have pots of leads. They weigh tons. Mm -hmm. Each machine weighs tons, and we've got three of them in the garage, and then we've got another machine called a Ludlow, which is big hand type okay and does he still one do letter at a time yeah he does it he has some small accounts he used to be the biggest letter press before we bought the funeral home he had the biggest letter press operation in pacific northwest but that was before personal computers Person, yeah that and yeah yeah i imagine that but there were still things that he could do even then like imprint, stuff yeah like businesses used to get fancy business cards but they they'd be blanks, you know. They have their logo and stuff on it, and they would call him up and say, and he would keep all their stock. And they'd call him up and say, "We need two hundred. We've got this new employee. Here's oh. the information, and just imprint this." Uh -huh. And so the fancy stuff was done, and then he would just imprint and like numbering and perf jobs and door hangers. Mm -hmm. there, and he has a niche that he can he can yeah. do. But now it's mostly a hobby. Mm -hmm. for him but it's good keeps him off the street yeah i bet <laughs> and that's which good because there's really only one street in chinook so <laughs> uh, yeah that's pretty cool so he did that he did is that what he went to college for what did, what is his education oh he background? went always oh, a nurse registered okay nurse. that's what i thought went to good samaritan school of nursing it was diploma school so it was three years but very hands-on he and my mom graduated from nursing school the same year 1977 mm -hmm. um which I remember that year because that's the year I was in Belfast, Northern Ireland for the summer. Did you do study abroad or is that just a personal no, trip? It was a personal trip. Cool. There was a guy there who had gone to, well, I, I, I didn't know really what I wanted to do. But after I graduated high school at 17 and went to Mount Hood, I was not ready for college. Mm -hmm. I was, oh, I was not ready. Did that play into some of the way you feel about Pushing kids through high school, yeah. getting the college credits early. Yep, yeah. and I don't want them to do um, to give free school, free community college. I don't. I don't want it to be free with no conditions uh -huh. because it'll turn into high school. There's too many. Yeah, and th there is some of that already. And community college is different because we serve everybody. Mm -hmm. I mean, we've got a really broad base. And, yeah. and part of that is I do understand people going to school to find out what they want to do or not want to do, this exploring thing. But there's a, 
a significant number of students who are at school because their parents are making them. Yeah, that's not good. And I would rather they go into a trade and get something where they can get some income. Yeah, and then and some self-fulfillment. And that, yeah. A lot of people don't, if they're being forced to do something, especially like a really good company man, mm-hmm. like I'm going to do what I'm supposed to do, but never fully engage and never really get that sense of identity through the work. You, to get that self-fulfillment, you need to be self-motivated, yeah. a, at least to some extent, Yeah, I think. Yeah. And it doesn't come like that. Yeah. So Ron went to Clark College out of high school, a printing program there. He also went to Benson High School when it was still a trade school. I don't know if it is as much of a trade school now as it was then, but that's where he learned to print. And his one of his printing instructors, and he became very close friends, and Howard worked with Ron. He even came down to the beach after we moved down here hmm. and helped him with his printing equipment. So, so when did you did and Ron first meet up? So 1977 was the summer I went to Belfast. I'd met a guy who was going to... Bible school out here in Portland, Portland Bible College. And I had gone to Portland Bible College the year before. And I hung out there a lot on my way to Portland State. And um, so that summer, I came back from Belfast in 77. And well, so I came back September 15th. And that January, I think, is when I started working at the print shop. Oh, okay. Somewhere in 78. So it was in 78 that we met each other. And, and did you um, fall in love right away? No, I was dating Scotty the Boy Scout in the shipping department. Oh, okay. And he was, da- <laughs> he was dating... So he stole you away from Scotty uh, the Boy Scout. Yeah, and he was dating Ardell, who he later married. And we all knew that wasn't going to work. Everybody knew but him. <laughs> and so we just waited that out, which didn't take too long, because Ron and I started going out. And we were married in 84. But I met him at the print shop. Okay. And what... He he was renting space out from the back. He kind of had his own business in the back of the shop, and he had his own phone line. And he would print all the funeral folders. This is before computers. Print all the funeral folders for almost all of the funeral homes in Portland, which there was a lot. Mm-hmm. So he had this big kind of order pad, and the funeral homes would call him up during the day, and he and they take he'd take down the information and he would print all their folders at night and deliver them all at night and when he would go to lunch he'd say can you answer my phones for me and i'd mm-hmm. say sure i can answer your phones and that's when i started taking orders for funeral home funeral folders is this before or after you went to school for it it was before before i was doing that so you really fell into it then i met ron and when we started dating he and i used to both be runners back then and when they opened up the Glen Jackson Bridge, mm-hmm. before they opened the bridge, they did the, the run between Oregon and Washington, so across and back. And he always talked about this guy, he, a friend of his name, Richard, who managed Gateway Chapel of the Chimes, a funeral home in Gateway, part of Portland. And so after we got done with the run, he said, we're, I'm going to go introduce you to Richard. We're going to meet him at the funeral home, and then we're going go to go to lunch. And I said, okay. So we met Richard. He was a funny little guy. We met him. He gave us a tour of the funeral home. And at one point, we'd been going out for about three months then. And at one point, he showed us the chapel. And he goes, as you can see, it's a very conservative chapel. And we can close these louvered doors here. And I can adjust the lighting, you know, in case you need a romantic moment. And I go, a romantic moment in a funeral home? He goes, 
people could get married here if they wanted to. And he was kind of doing the wink, wink thing. And I was going, who in the world would get married in a funeral home? And it was a little over a year later, Ron and I were getting married in that funeral home. (laughs) And Richard was like our um, wedding coordinator guy. I mean, you never know how things are going to work out. No, but it it comes with all its perks because by then I was working in the funeral home. Mm -hmm. I was going to go into nursing at that point and had all my prereqs. I didn't want an associate's degree. I wanted to go to OHSU, which my advisor said, yeah, I know you got a four point, but it's still going to take you two years to get in. I said, fine. So in that, I didn't got my first turn down and he goes, just be patient. You'll get in next year. During that year is when I got exposed to the funeral okay. business. I needed a part-time job. So he said, Richard said, oh, I'll get you a job in the bookkeeping department. They need somebody and corporate headquarters. So I went and worked there. And then we got married and Richard offered me an apprenticeship. Oh. And I thought, well, it comes with a free apartment. So I lived in that apartment until we got married. I did my apprenticeship with Richard and then I went to mortuary school. And then Lindsay was born right after national board exams. Okay. So I didn't get a job. Everybody else was getting jobs, and I was just kind of, okay, well, I'm going to do this for a while. National board exams, that's no joke. It doesn't matter what it is. Mm -hmm. Any kind. Anytime it says national or state boards, it's just, yeah, just hoops to jump through. Yeah. Anyway, so I did that and then worked I was in a kind of unique position and people said, well, we just need started out. We need somebody to work weekends or we need somebody to just fill in, help us out on this service. We're really busy. So I was doing a lot of part-time work at a lot of different funeral homes. And kind and, of learning the business. Yeah. They're, they're, they would actually call me up in the morning and say, um, we need you to go out to this service. It's the service at two. We'll, ha- we'll come pick you up. So they'd send their limo out their car, mm-hmm. they car out and they come pick me up. And in the car, I'm reading the folder, f- trying to find out information about the family, like, like I knew background. Uh-huh. And I'd go in, do the service, go to so the cemetery, you're, you're do that, and then they drop me off events? home. Not always speaking, but coordinating then. Okay. Greeting the family, mm-hmm. seating the family. But you um, need to have a connection to them to make yeah, that seem yeah, normal. Yeah, and the minister. So there yeah. was a lot of quick thinking on my feet. Mm-hmm. I have a question that has always seemed important to me, given the circumstances of your profession. What do you think happens after you die? Do you think we go to heaven? Do you think it all just ends? What do you think happens? I I don't think it ends. And I I believe in heaven, but I don't believe we really know what heaven is. I feel exactly the same way. Um. I've got, we were raised Southern Baptist. I remember going to vacation Bible school. I remember the Sunday services, getting baptized when I was six. And then we moved from California up to Oregon, and we didn't go for a while. And then it was not a conservative Baptist, American. I mean, Baptists, there's a Southern Baptist, conservative Baptist, American Baptist, and they don't really always get along with each other. Yeah, I've noticed that. And then in high school, that was when the Jesus People movement was going on. That's when I got saved, I guess you'd say. Mm -hmm. The born again type of saved. Um, And it was a lot of coffee shops, um, more than, there were churches, but there were coffee shops. 
um, that we would hang out with on that we would hang out at on Prince of Peace was one in um, downtown Portland. Hip hipster, hipster hipster Christians. Yeah, hippie. Yeah, hip more hippie than hipster. Okay, hipster. Yeah, free it was spirit. More hippie. Yeah, that doesn't sound all that bad to me. Uh, no, it like, it wasn't. It yeah. wasn't. It was really. It was a good time. I mean, it was a. It was something I needed at the really needed at the time because mm-hmm. I was sort of floundering, and then through different connections and stuff, somebody invited me to this church called Bible Temple, and that was during my junior year of high school, and that was really the best thing that ever happened to me because I got involved in the youth group, and that's where my that's still those people are still I consider them my people. That's awesome. And I went to Bible school. They had their own Bible college. It's up on, you know, if you go over 205 now and you see those kind of bubble buildings on the hill. Have you seen those? Uh Yeah, that's them. Okay. That's them. They took over the old Judson Baptist. Okay, I think I know what you're talking about. I mean, I know the people who built them. And my old youth pastor was one of the guys, Butch Smith, who built those. Anyway, that's where really my faith foundations come from is that Mm -hmm. time. And I went to... A year of Bible school because I I knew college wasn't for me and so um, I didn't know what else to do so I did that hmm. I did that for a year and then went back to Portland State kind of played around thinking I wanted to go into education but not being sure uh-huh. and then I came then I took my trip to Belfast in seventy seven then that's that's a whole podcast in itself that I was during the, that was during the troubles. Like the, what is it? The IRA. IRA, yeah. Yeah. It was just before the hunger strikers. But it was quite the, and I lived in, I lived there in two different parts of the city in 1977. And it was, that was, that's, I I won't get started, but there, but that was like a defining moment. Come back and tell me about that. Yeah, that was like a, a defining moment in my life. And it's like a, one of those, one of those markers in your life that it's weird. I've talked about this before, but how certain chapters of your life are are chronologically short, like could be even like six months, but yeah. in your memory they stand so prominently because they were like a, a signpost in your journey, and like mm-hmm. you turned from there and went this direction or 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 another direction. Yeah, yeah I have those too. Just and especially in those years where mm-hmm. you're you're young and you're just kind of getting your your footing as an adult seems like those are really yeah. important chapters. It was a good chapter in my life. I mean, stuff I did that summer, I mean, experiences I had and just even doing that for a summer. I knew where I was going to stay for 3 weeks and I I did a charter flight for 3 months. Oh wow, so you left it open. And uh, yeah, it was open. You were so, going for adventure. But those connections I've made I still have to this day. Wow. Um anyway, so I don't remember what the question was. Oh, I don't now. know. We were we got it off topic, but um, oh yeah, we were just talking about uh, religious philosophy, I guess. Oh yeah, yeah. So um, not that's necessarily the, religious, well, but yeah. But that's where my yeah that's philosophy. where my foundations come from. Now, Bible Temple was very conservative. Then it was called City Christian, and then now it's called Manor House in Portland. Sounds delicious. But I know, I know. But those those relationships I have that were made back then are the strongest relationships I've had. We had a, there was a Bible school reunion in 2017 and I went back there and it was like we didn't even miss a beat. People I hadn't seen for decades, some people I'm more connected with, but. That's fantastic. That's really the 
big that laid the entire foundation for the rest of my life. Now, that was very cons- conservative. It still is relatively conservative. And back in the day, in the late 70s, it was pretty legalistic. Mm-hmm. We thought... Meaning? Oh, well... Your but, works okay. get you to heaven? Oh. Is that what you mean by legalistic? Um, no, no, not oh, that's Calvinistic. Heaven. That's Calvinistic. Yeah, no. I get confused on all yeah. that. What is legalism? Well, like... The rules just matter a lot. The rules mattered a lot. Okay. Rules, especially at Bible school, the rules mattered, mattered a lot. I got campused. What does Me- that mean? means I couldn't leave. I couldn't leave the they campus. They imprisoned you on yeah. the campus? <laughs> yeah. Yes. That doesn't sound great. Yes, but guess why? Why? I <laughs> didn't, didn't follow vac- the rules? Yeah. You didn't and vacuum? You know what room? I didn't. It was... I, I got too many demerits for not vacuuming. Wow. The dorms were these houses and a fiveplex and different things around. It was a cool little community, but there were rules. Like uh, freshmen couldn't date for 60 days, and then it was one three-hour date a week. Wow. And the rest of the time, you could not be in a group of less than so many people with an even number of men and women. They're always so. There were these. There it's were like these, Sharia. <laughs> yeah, yeah, kind of. And you had to wear a dress. You couldn't mm-hmm. wear pants to church. Wow. You had to wear a dress. Guys always had to have their tie on, and so my demerits came from nothing. Remember, my roommate got campus because her skirts was too short. Well, oh. at least that's kind of a cool thing to get yeah, demerits a for. Rebellious. To get campus for me, there was one vacuum in this whole fiveplex. So. I had to go out, and the rooms got the dorms got checked every day, and so I had to go out and figure out who in the world had the vacuum, and can I borrow it? And then still That's vacuum. That's my term. So vacuum. So I would just go pick up the big pieces and thought that was good enough. Mm-hmm. Sweep a broom over it. Well, Miss um, Sister Steele was not oh, man. amused, so. That's what I got my demerits for. Did you like that environment where it's kind of structured? I know it was very structured. It was very safe. Mm -hmm. Um, There's pros and cons to that kind of setup. There are, but we worked. Everybody worked together. Mm -hmm. Like I worked at a daycare center, and all the employees and the afternoon shift were from the Bible college. It was like the people who took you. You had those people working. So it's a community around you. Yeah, and you were around them all the time. You know, there'd be prayer meetings before. They'd have prayer prayer in the morning, and then and that's like we all met in one room and did prayers. And then you'd have breakfast, and then you go to classes, and then you have lunch together. And then you go to work, and you'd work together. And in the evenings, you're back in the dorm. These are studying, or you know, there's youth group, there's choir, there's everything. It was the environment, and even if you weren't in Bible school, it still operated the same way. Um, my junior year in high school till probably mid, no, 77, 80, early 80s. So did you pick up habits just living that way in such a structured way that you carried with you forever? Like I know people who have gotten out of the military and then mm-hmm. they have like these organizational habits that is just like maybe not even necessary anymore, but they're going to still do them because they, that's who they are. Did you pick up habits like that from living like that? I did. I did keep habits for a long time. As far as reading scripture every day and going to church all the time. I mean, we literally lived. Even when I wasn't in Bible school, we were at church doing things all the time. But I started getting to the point where something wasn't right 
in my spirit. It just didn't feel right. And I felt like there was a different direction I needed to take. And so I started talking to the elders and such. And I got advice one time that said, if you ever leave this place, it's because Satan has your mind and you will never be able to trust anything you um, feel or believe again. Well, and you say that and I will, I will tell you, I don't think it falls under the formal definition. I'm very hesitant to say that just because I still know it, it, it's loose. It's the legalism isn't there as much uh-huh. anymore, you know, because but they were doing the best they could with the knowledge they knew at the time. I've I mean, it was some, one of the first real big churches. I've got some thoughts on how organizing humans in groups like that, especially around a fundamental set of philosophies or, mm-hmm. or ideas, and it's not all bad. And, and like cults, cults fall right into this same thing because, and, and cults, the way we that they're understood in pop culture, most likely end up in a abuse of power situation uh-huh. where like the leader so, is is causing, you know. So there. Oh, hold on. The, Let me just get this out real quick. Okay. So I I think though that there are just these systems in our psychology that are attracted to being put in a group, given a position, given a role, and have these community systems where you serve a purpose, you receive benefits on behalf of the system, you give on behalf of the system. And this is a really fundamental part of who we are as a species mm-hmm. and how we communicate and how we grow and you know how we function. But it can be hijacked pretty easily by ideas and, and things that are easy to trick people into believing uh, that certain things are important over other things and to give up personal autonomy in pursuit of the overall greater good. All these things are really easy to use to shift the priorities of an individual towards the priorities of a group. Mm -hmm. And so I'm really torn when I watch these cult shows. I I just watched this one called The Vow. It's on HBO and it's about the Nexium cult. And it was like, uh, they just broke up a couple years ago after a big scandal. I haven't got to the end of the series, so I don't know how it ends, but it's essentially like these really successful people and they go after good-looking, wealthy, successful, intelligent people and then they teach them these psychological tricks to fully engage their mind and, and how to connect and all, all these stuff. That's real stuff. They use real techniques and then they use those and twist them into eventually like funneling women into having sure. sex with the leader. But everything below that is actually pretty legit and kind of useful yeah. and helpful. So it's just like, I, I don't know, I, I'm afraid of that kind of stuff big time, especially when they say things like that, where like, hey, if you if you find yourself questioning the leader, that means that the devil's attacking you. Yeah. That's dangerous. That one statement haunted me for forever because I don't believe, uh, I don't believe it. Yeah. And I don't believe that's why I wanted to leave. Now to get out of there, I moved in with the guy I was going with. Weren't married, were you? Oh, no. No, I bet they didn't like that. No, and there was a little intervention that Uh went on, but nobody was taking me seriously. You were thinking too much. Yeah. (laughs) So that was was an overreaction maybe on my part. But I will say that the foundations that I had at that place from those days formed the foundation of who I am now. And you started out this podcast asking me about Jeff, my Jeff. And all the difficulties, um, his mental health issues and the difficulties around there. I truly believe that it's that foundation that's helped me through those times and helped me help Jeff. Because when he was up 
in Bellingham with you one time. He went to visit you. And it was one of those things where I was, I was, um, I didn't know what to do. I tried for years and years to control his behavior. Here's what you have to do and try to get him, <laughs> yeah, try to get him to do a certain thing. And I remember when he was up with you in Bellingham for a while without going into all the details of that time period. He wouldn't, he wouldn't answer my phone calls. The more I tried to control things, the worse it got. So what I did, I just did the only thing I knew. So I sent him a scripture. Second Samuel, I think it's Second Samuel 22, from the message. And it starts out, but me he caught, reached all the way down from heaven and pulled me out of this pit. That's kind of how it starts. And I, and I just, all I did was I texted him that verse. I didn't get an answer. So the next day, well, I'll send him another one. So I sent him another one. I don't know what I sent. But then I got a text back. And all he said was, I like the first one better. <laughs> and that verse, when That's he was in him. jail, when he was in jail, he said, can you send me that? And still sitting in his room on the um, dresser in his room is the thing I sent him when he was in jail, which is that verse, and then it goes down. So, and there's with times where he called, like the in last incident, it's really been the last big incident when he was um, at St. V's. Uh-huh, and that's after the police yeah. had to get him out of his yeah. apartment. We so talked about that one yeah. in his episode. What happened is he called me at two o'clock in the morning and my phone was on and it was right by my desk and I answered it and I said, hi, Jeff. And his first response was, why did you answer? He had just left me a voicemail. Yeah, yeah, because he did that. Mm -hmm. And I said, I answered it because you called me. And he started going on about stuff and then I realized there's something going on. So I got up and I went downstairs and I talked, kept him on the phone for about half hour, 45 minutes. Now he'd been drinking and a lot yeah and I said well I'm going to come down there and he said it, it'll be too late and I and I just kept talking to him and then finally he hung up and I went upstairs and Ron said what was that about it so now it's like 3 a.m. and I said I think Jeff's been drinking I think he's going to kill himself and I didn't know what to do so I reached back to my foundation because Ron always says, well, you're not going to church anymore. You've lost your faith. And I said, no, I haven't lost my faith. That's That one thing is solid. I may not follow the protocol. I may still swear from you're not now and again. Yeah, yeah, I may swear now and again. And I have issues with I, there's some things that I don't agree on. Well, my mom is my mom was gay and that didn't fit. Mm -hmm. with the culture. So I've tried to balance. I found my way. I found a way to keep my faith and still do that. Anyway, so... I'm working on that now. It's a hard, it's a hard <laughs> I'm road. I'm going to keep Jeff. at it till I die. Yeah, yeah. But there's more things to say about that. But I said, I don't know what else to do. So Ron said, well, I'm just going to sleep. Because you get to a point... You get to a point when you deal with someone with addictions and mental health issues which the addictions, I believe, stem from that Yeah. most of the time. And you don't know how to handle it, and you're not trained. And even people who are trained, 
You they know, even get exhausted. Sex. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, if your child has cancer, there comes a point where you tell them it's okay not to hang on anymore. It's okay to go if you need to. And, and that's acceptable. But is mental illness any different? And if Jeff really feels that this is what he has to do, I mean, I feel hesitant to even say this out loud right now. I, I, I know. I've, I, I've if, had these thoughts in my head. I'm going to let you finish. Yeah. But if you've got mental illness, at what point do you say, if you feel you have to go, let go? And I, but at the same time, I'm going to fight for him every minute of every day. And a lot of that fight, I will tell you, Jeff, is on the spiritual level because I believe in prayer and Jeff gets them. Yeah, he does. He gets them and he got them that night. And I, He's open to him. He's, he's waiting yes. for him. He oh, wants I know. Him. And I pulled every prayer trick I know that night. And, and all of a sudden, I got this thought, call 911. And I thought, well, this 911 is, but that's what I did. I called 911 here. Not a problem. Hooked me up to the Beaverton 911, told him what it was. And next thing I know, the Beaverton police were on the phone with me. Saved his life. It did. It did. It yeah, did. for sure. Uh, to, to a lot of people, that might sound like, well, yeah, of course you'll you call 911. But it's, given the history of that situation, that's not the first thing to come to mind because this was happening not regularly, but it was not the first time. You know, because, yeah, because my first thing was, I'm just going to drive down there and try to fix it myself. And what I've realized over the years is I can't fix Jeff. Mm -hmm. Jeff is the only one who can fix Jeff with help from... I, I believe, you can call it a higher power, but I believe God's the one that's given him the strength to do what he's done with his life. I don't think he's going to be able to do it without God, mostly because Jeff knows God. Mm -hmm. He Jeff, does. Jeff knows that that's where he's going to find that power. And define it however you want, but there's something other than us. Yes. And Jeff is tapped in, and he knows. And that's probably the reason he's still here. I think so. Is because he has a purpose. He hasn't figured it out yet. But he's not done trying. Uh, he's not. He's not. And he's got something. He's here for a reason. And he's got a story to tell. I agree. I've got his journal notes that he took when he was in jail. He wrote. I and have a couple letters he wrote me from jail mm -hmm. and rehab that I've saved. You hang on to those. He journaled. And I have not read them. I've just got them. And I've kept them. And one day I'm going to transcribe them and see what's in there for the first time. But he's got a story. Yeah. He's, and he's he can communicate it better than so many other people. I know he can. That's what I've gotten out of this podcast. Like me and Jeff, we're going to start a podcast together. That's how this whole thing started. Yeah. And um, because- Jeff and Jeff Inc. That's right. <laughs> and we've had Jeff and Jeff Incorporated going since we were 10 years old. It's, mm -hmm. it's a fake company that <laughs> uh, bears our likeness. And it's really just a symbol of our friendship. And it's awesome. I, it, it brings me joy just thinking about actually being able to do that. And he got busy with work and just life, you know, mm -hmm. and I just decided to lean into it and do it and have it here when he wants to be a part of it. He's yeah. welcome anytime. And, and when he's busy with other stuff, he's busy with other stuff. But essentially, I learned right away with the first episode and then we've done another one since then. And yeah. There will be many more. People like listening to Jeff give his story. I get more feedback from the Jeff Hilton episodes than anything else. He hasn't even touched he hasn't even, 
because I've listened to both of those podcasts and he hasn't even that's just this scratching the surface. I know it. Of what's of what's there. He's deep, super and deep. He's just got he, he, he will I think over the next several years he's going to find his spot. He'll get out of his own way. Yeah. Which is not easy because he's huge. So he's <laughs> I know. But yeah, he he puts roadblocks in front of himself cuz it's I mean we all do it and it's and it's I mean I do it with myself too but he's afraid to succeed. Like what if what if this all works out? And then I know who's he going to be if he's if he's like if things are just going well. <laughs> like, yeah. Well, it's like even even when you talk about, you know, being in um, a church establishment or religious establishment or institution that's defined a certain way and trying to get out of that. It's similar. Mm-hmm. What if that's not who I what if I'm not that person anymore? What if I'm not the one who's at church all the time? What if I'm not? Does that mean I don't have faith? Does that mean? And I, I don't believe that. I don't believe I don't either. that at all. I don't either. Somebody posted a meme that says, if, if grace comes with a list of conditions and rules and laws to follow, then it's not grace anymore. Yeah. And I think the whole truth of what grace really is what God really is. I don't think there's a religion out there who hasn't put, even the independents, put God in a box. It's a different box. It may be a bigger box. It may be a whole different box. I mean, there may be things those boxes have in common. It's still a box. Mm-hmm. Um, some A friend of mine asked, I used to live with their family for a while, and she asked me, do you believe that heaven is a physical place? And I said, "Mm, I don't know. She goes, I do. What do you think? And I said, I think it doesn't make a hill of beans a difference what it is. Whatever we're thinking, I don't think it's going to be like that. No, I think the fundamental detail in my mind about heaven that makes none of that stuff really matter is the fact that I think it's probably outside of space and time. Mm -hmm. It's on a level that linear time is irrelevant. Some dimension that isn't there there's too much uh, there's too many things i've experiences i've had down at the funeral home nothing real spooky mm-hmm. nobody's come back to life nobody's waved at me i haven't seen a ghost ever mm-hmm. ever and no bodies don't sit up <laughs> just for fun no that no that does not happen mm-hmm. um but yeah that place is not gotten, real spooky for having so many dead no people we had the girl through. scouts there we had the boy scouts cub scouts there i got dressed for prom in there <laughs> yeah there's this whole generation around your guys's age group your your age group and Lindsay's age group where it's like yeah whatever so hopefully we've at least impacted them so they see it as more of a natural mm-hmm. i mean it's just something that's going to happen to yeah. everybody yeah. at some point so anyway before we go, I would like to touch a little bit more on that um, Jeff stuff. Yes. Just like, so Jeff's let us know ahead of time, like we could talk about this stuff, but it's it's still kind of hard just because it's... It's because I don't like saying it, I don't like saying it out loud and I don't like saying that phrase that I said. I don't want it, I don't want anybody to ever think that suicide is okay. I don't want anybody to ever think um, that I... <laughs> encourage that but kind of thing. I don't think that's going to be a problem. It's honesty. Yeah, and it's not it's, the same as being on the ground when someone's standing on the edge of a building saying, just jump. That's not what it's you're not saying. It's not what it is. That's it's, not what it is. 
yeah, the analogy you used before where it's a sick person and it's okay to say you let go if that's what you need to do. I, I totally understand the love in that statement. Mm -hmm. And that's that's all it is. It's just, it's the desire to want to let the suffering be done. It's also a way that if it had happened, it would help me make sense of it. Yeah. And in to a certain extent, not, not ever thinking that you ever really can. Mm -hmm. um, but... I've had enough conversations with him when he's down, 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 mm -hmm. um, and enough conversations with him when he's up to know that, like, this man struggles with pain. Even, he does. Even on his best days. He does. Even on his best days. And so it's not my place to tell him how to deal with that. And it's not my place to tell him where to go with it or what to be or anything. It's just my place to be his friend and be there when he needs me, and that's it. I went to NAMI, and I don't remember exactly where he was. It may have been right before rehab, right before Luke's death, right around that time. But I, Craig and Lorraine Brown are the ones that talked about NAMI. And I went down and, and what took is NAMI? Um, the National Association of Mental Illness. I think that's what, it's approximately that. And they have support systems and things. But I went down there and took their classes. And there was some activity they did one day. And I think they meant it more to give you some insight into schizophrenia, but I think it applied for other things as well. It may not be outside thoughts, but it may just you dealing with your own thoughts. And what I remember is after that was over, I just sat there and I was absolutely exhausted. And I thought to myself, if this is what it's like, no wonder no wonder he runs to drugs back then, which he doesn't now. Yeah, he seems so much healthier now mm -hmm. than he was oh, yeah. really ever oh, before. Yeah. Yeah. He seems great. Yeah. No wonder, and not just Jeff, but people in general with mental illnesses mm -hmm. run to drugs, run to the streets. They want a quick um, fix. Yeah, because the they suffering. want to fix what was going on in your head. And the yeah. way they, the exercise they did, I can't, I mean, I can't even describe it, but you got put sort of in the middle of that. And I thought, I would be running. If that's what is going on in your head, I would be running from that too. And I would want that to stop. I think a lot of people who are suffering from mental illness get into a state of like shame. If it, it's not a broken arm, people can't just see that you're hurting. And so they get into a state where they're worried that people are judging them. Or, I mean, I've felt these feelings myself. That just like, that almost as if like, since there's no specific reason that you can cite for your pain it's almost like you don't deserve it mm -hmm. and and people will just treat you like just suck it up get yeah. over it yeah and you can't so a couple things about that i mean sh shame is it's well just talking about shame that's a whole other podcast yeah it really is but you know we've got the tweakers out on i'll just i don't know if i can say that but we have the tweakers on street and everybody knows who we're talking about <laughs> and you know and we've had dispatch on speed dial when things would get bad over there and we've had the search dogs on our property and stay in the house we're looking for somebody who came over from the tweakers house i see them on the street now and i don't mean i honestly don't mean for this to sound super spiritual or or freaky or literal even but when i see them 
which I don't see them any, as much anymore because I've been in Bend for five years. But when I see them or I see homeless people or somebody who's obviously drugged out or whatever walk in the streets, I get this sense of remember who's watching out for them. And these are really just people, and you don't know what got them to this spot. So I get this sense now when I see them, and this is, I'm talking about the most down and out people. I see them, and the next thought I have is there's an angel right by them, walking with them wherever they are, whatever path they're taking. Somebody's watching out for them. And I got the same feeling one day with my Jeff when he started going in this direction and it was like I, I was walking through a parking lot somewhere going gosh dang it and it wasn't those words <laughs> but my first thought was I have to nip this in the bud and I've got to stop this and I this is as close to I don't hear God's voice literally I don't I, I it's not like that but it's this very strong sense of somebody taking me by the back of the collar, the back of my neck, and saying, I got this. Mm-hmm. This is not your job. I got this. Your job is to love them and keep doing what you're doing. I'll get the details. Okay, so my mom is very, very spiritual. She's always ha- always has been really involved in in church and just like it's her it's her main hobby and calling and everything like she's in it for god and her relationship with god is really important she prays all the time um she's prayed for jeff since we were in high school mm-hmm. um and she's like my prayer mercenary like when i need some serious prayer i will call my mom and say like hey could you please pray on this and and she does it and it and in my mind it really matters and makes a difference so She's always kept an eye on Jeff just because she knows how important he is to me. And so the last time we did a podcast, he she listened to it and she called me right away and she said, hey, I was praying for Jeff and I just got the, she doesn't hear it mm-hmm. literally either, but that I should call you and tell you to tell Jeff to be on the lookout because he's out, he's doing something great and he doesn't even realize it yet, but he's yeah. going to be attacked. And I really believe that she's getting some divine intervention because I think that anytime you try to shake it up and break out of your bad habits or break out and into a new unfamiliar territory, you're going to face these obstacles that you never would have expected. Mm-hmm. And especially if you're trying to do something that takes active work, like an artistic pursuit or a new career path or a new relationship, anything that takes real hard work and and you know is in the right direction for your life, you're going to face those obstacles. And it's good and evil. It's a fight of good and evil. It is. It and, is. And the harder you work for good, the more the evil is going to come at and you. And you can call it, you can, I mean, the the fundamentalists will say it's literally Satan. Um, I, I, dark forces, I don't know. I the don't dark know. arts. Because the more I get, the more I I. I try to define what my faith is and my spirituality is. I don't, I don't, I honestly don't know. I know what I believe in and I know what I know and I believe in God and I believe in his power and I believe there's spiritual forces out there. And I personally believe there's life after death and I do not know 
what form it takes, nor do I want to spend my time worrying about what it is. Mm -hmm. I don't want to worry about if we get to eat tacos when we go to heaven. Yeah. Are the streets really made of gold? Yeah. Who cares? I mean, like, that'd be slippery. (laughs) Yeah. Um, You know, I don't know. I, I don't know. I don't know. It's not something I want to rush to find out. And I'm I'm perfectly happy to stay down here and want to stay down here for a long time. You are kind of inspiring me because I I always kind of feel like I'm just like half in, half out because I really do. I have, like you, a very strong fundamental knowledge of my spirituality that came from childhood. Yeah. And I've carried that with me. But I also have a, a very critical mind and I really, really don't trust people. And all of the people that are involved in running worldwide religion business have kind of put a sour taste in my mouth. Yeah. So I have a really hard time trusting them. And I don't want to get left out in the cold because of other people, you know, skimming off the top or driving Jesus jets. The, the tr- yeah. Yeah, no, I know exactly. And I'm, I've got stories I could tell you about that. I also don't want to lead other people astray to be like, hey, yeah, no, don't give your money to Billy Graham because he's going to buy a jet. Maybe give your money to a poor person. Or, or like, I, I don't want to lead people away from the church. Okay, so here's, here's my philosophy and all that. That stuff's not our job. It's not our, our job. It's, it's not our job. When I think about what got me down that path, what got me, and I absolutely am... I can't say enough how what a positive experience that I had in high school during the Jesus People movement during during all that time. I I don't know where I'd be today without that. I don't know what kind of person I'd be. That being said, I don't think we have to fit into that box as as people of faith, as Christians, as whatever. I don't think it's we're that because we go to a recognized church. I don't think we're that because of outward appearances. And I do think, and that's not my department to worry about either. It, it's it's God's department to take care of if you're buying too many Jesus jets, because I know yeah. exactly what you mean by that, even though there may not be literal jets. Yeah. It's just materialism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Run amok. Uh, yeah. And I don't know if I buy if you pray you'll get healed you didn't get healed because you didn't pray hard enough or this didn't happen because you didn't do this no if that grace comes with conditions and rules and laws and you have to do this to get this then it's not grace yeah so I know I don't know why I was telling that story I don't know but it was good I don't know now I'm older and I start stories and I don't know that's this Why entire podcast. Because there's a lot of things we started and we didn't finish them. Probably every story. Uh, that's the way. <laughs> every every time I edit one of these, I'm, I'm like, okay, we didn't finish that story, but we started this new one and mm-hmm. then never finished it and went on to this new one. That's how people talk. That's how people talk. So that's what we're capturing. Yeah. Uh, but it's been over two hours. You have been oh, a great sport. Sure. Wow. Yeah, it just flew by. Thank you so much for coming. You Let's, probably edit out a lot of that. Uh, not as much as you would think. <laughs> that was really great. And... I, I would like you to come back because we touched on a few things that we didn't back. get to it'd get be, too deep on. It'd be nice on. to come finish up on on some of those. Yeah, I would really like that. Um, Jeffrey sent me a Mother's Day text yesterday morning. 
at like 6.30 a.m. I think he was getting <laughs> on a boat <laughs> uh-huh. to, again to go crabbing. And Lindsay was down over the weekend. But I responded to Jeffrey's post and I just says, you are my heart. And Lindsay too. Um, I thought, oh, I better say that to Lindsay as well. What if she finds that? What if she reads that? I didn't say the exact same thing to her. Being I, a parent's great. It's the greatest thing ever. But dang it, they can suck the life out of you faster. Than Almost every time. It's like it's like worn out. And, and Yeah, th- I've been giving myself some relief with yeah. the thought that, okay, 18 years. I got, I got, I got 18 years in me. I can, I can live this overstressed, overworked life for 18 years. But I look at parents like you and my own mom, like maybe a little longer than 18 years. I'm in my 30s. I still depend on my mom for lots. It's, oh, yeah. Uh, but th- see, never it goes job. back to what I think I said at the beginning. There's a reason you are the parents to the kids your parents have. Parents, step-parents, whatever. There's a reason it's you and not somebody else. And you may not know exactly to what extent that's true or not true, but I believe it. Even if it's parents who suck at being parents, there's something that needs to be developed in those kids that you can only get from adversity. That's, that's the it. kind of destiny I believe in. Is that's what, that's reality. What, yeah. Well, on that note, okay, let's Jeff. get out of here. Thank All you right. so much for coming, Liz. Okay, it's yeah. been a pleasure. Bye, guys. Gotta go.